Hello, folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, aka Steven Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visa blog and author of A Special Relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visupview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, .blogspot.com. And procure a copy of that book and my other works at the Farm's official store, which is at thefarmpodcast.store. That is thefarmpodcast.store. And please consider signing up for the Farm's Patreon. You get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive gifts and content. Okay, guys, I have got a heavyweight trio of gifts for today's show, all of them repeaters. Our first guest has been a writer on Project Censored, Daily Censored, and Truth Out, among many others. He received the Project Censored Most Censored News Story Award for both 2009 and 2010 for the articles Neoliberalism, Charter Schools, and the Chicago Models, and Obama and Duncan's Education Policy, like Bush's Only Worse, published by Counterpost, uh, Punch in August 20, 24th, 2009. He has published more than seven books on education in the past 20 years, including Charter School Movement, History, Politics, Policies, Economics, and Effectiveness. And he has decades of activism stretching back to the anti-war movement of the 1960s. During the 1980s, he was in Nicaragua to support the Sandinistas and fought against charter schools towards the end of the 20th century and beyond. And finally, he has been investigating parapolitics for nearly 50 years. Folks, I give you guys the legend, Danny Weil. Danny, thank you so much for dropping by today, sir. Thank you for the nice introduction. A pleasure to be with all of you. Thank you very much, sir. All right, our next guest is another legend. He is the founder of Public Eye Magazine and the Political Research Associates. He is best known for authoring the classic work, works Old Nazis, New Right, and the Republican Party, and the Coors Connection. Folks, I give you guys the parapolitical legend, Russ Ballant. Russ, thank you so much for joining us again today, sir. It's an honor to join this fine company. Thank you. All right, and rounding out the cast this time around is the farm's ultimate repeater, the great John Brisson of We've Read the Documents, the rising star of the parapolitical field. John, thank you so much for joining us for these podcasts, sir. Thank you very much, as always, Recluse. Happy to be here on the farm with such heavyweight hit hitters. It's going to be a great show. Hope you guys enjoy yourselves very much. You're going to learn a lot, a lot, a lot of good information. Absolutely. So, all right, folks, this is the fourth installment in the farm's ongoing Secret History of International Fascism series. With this outing, we are going to explore the rise of the Council for National Policy, or CNP, and the profound influence the CNP has had on American politics. Now, there's a bit to unpack before getting into that proper, most notably the phenomenon of the quote-unquote new right. Now, that's a label that's brought out every few years to reban the old fascist right. But in the sense, I'm talking about the late 1970s, early 1980s incarnation that eventually brought Reagan to power. It was this milieu that also brought the CMP into being. We're going to explore how this came about and what hell has been spawned from it. So here we go. 
So the foundation for the new right was laid with a charming document known to posterity as the Powell Memo. It was issued in 1973, coming five years after a significant disturbance in the force began in 1968. So as we noted in the prior installment, 68 witnessed a wave of student protests that broke out across the world, most notably the anti-Vietnam ones in the United States and the May Day demonstrations in France. Uh, excuse me, May of September there, uh, May of 68 in France demonstrations. So by the mid-1970s, the dark side was sufficiently concerned to offer up a new game plan. So Danny, tell us a bit about the Powell Memo. Well, let me, let me try to set, uh, a, a, first of all, it's a pleasure to be on with uh, John and Russ. And uh, uh, let me try to set the, the, uh, some, of the, some of the historical background for some of this, because as you mentioned, uh, this is a show uh, that I'm trying to make the claim that there is a an organized effort in international fascism, and it has been quite a few times. But you mentioned the 70s, which is really a very, very important decade, and oftentimes not considered such. Um, the 60s went from, I would say, 65 to 75. One is talking about the anti-war movement 60s. Uh, but the 70s, let me just rattle off a couple of things to lay the groundwork for why the Powell Memo was so necessary for the, Ameri for the, the American ruling class. This was the time in the 70s, was the time of the CIA investigations by the, by, uh, 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 the church committee, the House uh, uh, assassination, the House Committee assassination investigation. It was a time for the organization of the religious right, the fascist and white supremacists. It's the end of Watergate, uh, Cheney and Rumsfeld emerge. It's the end of the Vietnam War. It's an ecological era in the mid-1970s when all of a sudden new energy is starting, an environmental movement is starting to call itself out. We see the opening of China in the 1970s by Kissinger. In the 70s, we see R.J. Rush Dooney. He publishes his Institutes of Biblical Law in 1973, advocating not just an American theocracy, but an even more hardcore theonomy, a nation governed by biblical law. We see the returns of vets and anti-war vets to an America that's essentially being broken. Uh, Western Goals begins to organize in 1979, which we'll talk about later, an organization that could be called the secret weapon of John Birch's society. Heroin production is now shifted in the 70s from China to Latin America. But we see OPEC and the organization of the Arab states. Singlob is one of the first generals to be fired after MacArthur. Uh, by uh, Jimmy Carter in the 1970s. The Heritage Foundation is created in the 70s, and just a mere correction of, 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 of recluse, and that is the Powell Report uh, is issued in 1971. It's ALEC that it started in 1973. So in a single 18-month period during 71 and 72, so why, why, it, it, this is important to understand also what's going on in the backdrop. In a single 18-month period during 71 and 72, the FBI counted an amazing 2,500 bombings on American soil, almost five bombings a day. Okay, but because they were typically detonated at night, and the people just got to be started to accept them. We saw 2,500 CIA officers fired in the 1970s. We saw an Iran revolution in the 1970s. Okay, the rise of front groups uh, by the uh, obviously, uh, uh, a mind control type of front groups like the SLA. 
the rise of serial killers and cults is really persisting. Roe v. Wade is passed in the 1970s. We see the Sandinistas take over in 1979 uh, uh, in, in, a, in a revolution that had been lasting for 25 years. Oscar Romero and El Salvador massacre. Of course, that was in the early 80s with four Jesuits. But really what we see, and we see the attempted murder of George Wallace in the 70s, but really what, we, what I'd like to emphasize before I jump into the Powell memo is that we see really the 26 years of golden age of capitalism, which reigned from about 1948 to about 1974, they created a, the biggest middle class that had ever existed in the history of the world. Okay, we see this beginning to die in the early 70s. And in 1974, who gets the economic uh, Nobel Prize? It's Dr. Friedrich Avon Hayek. No more Keynesianism, all right? We see the rise in neoliberalism. And this is a, a big issue, is to, to, to focus on what's going on economically, all right? We see wildcat strikes that are, are going on in the 1970s like never before. Um, I think, uh, 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 the amount of strikes we'll talk about in a minute. But the other thing in the 70s that happened is the, the, the labor force change. The number of women entering the labor force in the 1970s, sheer numbers, okay, increased from 70, right, in 19, increased uh, dramatically, 30.3 million in 1970 to 72.7 million during 2006 and 2010. Now, that entrance of women into the labor force would have a profound effect on unionizations, okay, and creating a sub-tier class of workers that could then be used to break the backs of organized labor, but that's another issue. If you convert that into percentages, though, the, uh, the rise from 1970 to 2010 of women in the labor force, 47.21%, um, biggest gains in the 1970s. And during this time, liberalism is starting to die and the Democratic Party is moving further to the right or not knowing what the hell, what to do. It's the last liberal in the party was Robert Kennedy and he was murdered in 68. So we start seeing Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan are gonna start adopting supply side economics. All right, no more Keynesianism. And of course we see this, this is an incredible time of, of, of hyperinflation in the United States. I mean, 22% interest rates, incredible. The system is collapsing. They don't know what to do. So they call in Volcker and they raise rates, all right? And, 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 and they play games with the economy. Last point about this, there were 1,700 strikes. Right now, we're seeing something that's very relevant that's going on today that we can only hold that, can have, that has the same resonance as it did in the 70s. Since 2020, we've seen 1,700 strikes in the United States. And that's a really a whopping big increase. And we have been seeing workers pushing not only back upon, upon, the, upon the employers, but they're pushing on their union structures and challenging their corrupt leadership. And I call you know, listeners' attention to the Kellogg strike and the Deer strike. There are just two recent examples that just happens. And also, we're seeing a form of wildcat strike. 25% of Americans have quit their jobs since the pandemic. They just walked off. Either because they were getting a stimulus at one point or unemployment, or they just said, it's not worth it to me anymore. And this is a form of a, of a, of a wildcat strike. 
So and all of this stuff is going on in the 70s and more. And I just want to mention that one thing that is going on in the 70s is the privatization of the intelligence community. Uh, George Bush becomes CIA, head of the CIA in 1976. He serves one year, all right? But of course, he's always served in the CIA since the 50s, all right? So um, the old, old spies are stripped due to the Carter revelations and the House investigation committees. And so the ruling class needs a privatized system that they can set up. Okay, that they can have an off the books to run covert operations around the world. The Powell Amendment it, it itself was as a result of what everything that I just described in the 1970s. In other words, the American ruling class was seeing all this happen in a period of 10 years, the loss of the war, the whole thing. And they said, my God, what are we going to do? We need to organize. And we better organize now. And we better organize right. And so they put together, you know, basically um, their plan of organization. And who put together the plan? It was Powell himself. Now, Powell was an attorney who worked for the tobacco industry. And he was one of the people that argued that tobacco should be legal um, because it didn't cause any danger. And of course, he was all about this whole thing. He in 1971, in August, he put together a memo that was originally called Attack on American Free Enterprise. Uh, but they changed it to the Powell Memo. And he outlined ways in which business should defend and counterattack against what he called disquieting voices. And he put together a bold strategy of how to take over basically the entire government. And I think it is that strategy that people don't know and that strategy that John uh, and, and younger generations have to be building on because I don't know if most people know this, but President Eisenhower, most people know that he made comments about the military industrial complex, but very few know about his words that were sent to his brother in, in a letter that he sent at the end of the Korean War in 1952. And he wrote to his, his he had a right-wing brother, and he wrote to his brother and he said, he quote, should any political party attempt to abolish social security or unemployment insurance or eliminate labor laws or farm programs, you won't hear that party again in our, in, our, in our political history. There's a tiny splinter group, of course, that believes you can do these things. Among them are H.L. Hunt, who possibly know his background, a few other Texas oil millionaires, and an occasional politician or businessman from other areas. But their number is negligible, and they're stupid. He wrote this to his brother in 1952. Stupid, doubtful, Negligible? Take a look at the present state of affairs. Okay, what is this, this, this alliance, this Powell member? He writes it to the Chamber of Commerce, and it's responsible for now an impressive array of almost 500 right-wing think tanks, fascist think tanks, from the Cato Institute, Heritage Foundation, American Enterprise Institute, the Manhattan Institute, the Claremont American Council of Trustees and Alumni, Middle East Forum, Accuracy and Media, National Association of Scholars, and of course, let's not forget David Horowitz Center for the Study of Popular Culture, because they need Horowitz to copy the left and how they can take over the government. And that's exactly what they've done. They've copied the left, us. Those people in the 1970s that were doing a lot of what they're doing now. 
Not to mention there are countless radio stations and cable and nonprofit and civic organizations. Two, years, two months after Powell wrote this memo that I'm going to talk about in a minute, two months after he wrote it, he's appointed to the Supreme Court by Nixon. Okay. Obviously, the fix was in. In 71, he's, he's a corporate lawyer. He's working for Hunton and Williams. It's a large firm in, in Richmond, Virginia. He's, he's a corporate lawyer working for the Bacow Institute. So he writes a memo to his friend Eugene Sidnor Jr., who's the director of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. And this one I mentioned that his experience as a corporate lawyer on Philip Morris until 1964, uh, from 64 until he's appointed on the court, made him a champion of the tobacco industry. You can imagine the amount of cancer deaths attributed to him. Uh, he argued that they had First Amendment rights and they were being infringed upon. Well, that's what we hear today in so many discourse. Okay. Powell was a member of the Carthage Foundation, or what is also known as the League of Carthage, founded by Richard Mellon Scape. And they were good buddies. And it was inspired by a wealthy heirs of industrialists of the Earhart Foundation, whose money came from oil fortune. And the Smith Richardson Foundation that I know that you had mentioned, uh, Ray Cruz and, and the John has read and loved them as well. Um, to use private charitable foundations to report, uh, to join the Carthage Foundation and, and to, to pony up, basically. Okay, it, this is, you know, basically during the time of the New Deal. And it's, remember, it's important to remember that the Chamber of Commerce is responsible for not only subsidizing Hitler, and World War One and World War Two, but also for the Butler attack and et cetera, et cetera. All right. The Powell memo was leaked after Powell was put on the Supreme Court. It was leaked to who? Well, it was, it was leaked to Jack Anderson, a liberal syndicated columnist. And Anderson cautioned, and I'll quote, he might use his position on the Supreme Court to put his ideas into practice in behalf of business interests. But duh, what do you think he wrote it for? Okay, but it wasn't the sole influence. All right, there are other people playing the same game in this in, 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 in this whole thing. Um, uh, uh, William Simon also started a similar type of organization in 1978 uh, to organize uh, NAM and Chamber of Commerce and and, and uh, hundreds of, of people into into their, their their game. Powell would go on to, to to render the decision in the First National Bank of Boston versus Bilotti that shifted First Amendment law making money of, of the same as free speech. He went on in 1976 in the Buckley case, Powell did, uh, finally destroying American democracy by um, um, just saying that, that money transferred to politicians wasn't bribery, but was constitutionally protected free speech again. And David Harvey, the notable author and academic called Powell Memo, probably the beginning of, of, of neoliberalism in the end really the United States. Um, William Simon is the one that I was thinking of. He uh, took the ideas of Barry Goldwater and Shaftley, and this is kind of where we're going. We're seeing these kinds of splits again in the ruling class on how they want to kind of organize things. Um, here's a Powell memo that I want to get to. Number one, he identifies a problem, and he says possible actions for consideration. He, he starts out with the dimensions on the attack. I'm going to bullet it real fast. He says, no thoughtful person can say that we're not, our economic system is not under broad attack. He then goes on to say, our when he's talking about the economic system, he's talking in nationalistic terms, 
which of course is, is very relevant for what we're seeing. And it's playing upon our socio-centricity as a nation and American exceptionalism. But he's talking about capitalism. And he's saying, look, we're in big problems today. There's an, and he goes on. There's an assault on the free enterprise system and it's being bottled on the base and consistently pursued. Sources of the attack. He says they include the usual suspects, the communists, leftists, revolutionaries, but he's after the intelligentsia. He is pissed at the liberals. He says these extremists are the less or numerous, but they're not the real problem. The problem is liberalism. These are the problem. This is the disquieting voices, he says, that are joining the chorus of criticism. They come from perfectly respectable elements of society, from college campus, from the pulpit, from the media, from the intellectual and literary journals, the art, science, and politicians. He's saying this 51 years ago. And where is the battle happening today? College campuses, the pulpit, the media, intellectual literary journals, critical literacy, the arts, the scientists, etc. And so he's talking about the whole democratic culture. Okay. Uh, this it, it goes on. Um, media is too liberal, of course. It's one of our big problems. We got to get into the campuses, he says. And he says, and we got to start getting rid of these, these, these leftist professors that are in there. And we start, need to start putting our own people in there. We need to start our own national TV systems. And most of the media, including national systems, are owned and operated by corporations that depend on profits, but they're not doing anything about it. So we've got to do something. We've got to put together a secret cabal. And then he goes into the tone of attack. He says, now look, we've got to do this really carefully. But you can see what he's doing now. He brings up William Counselor, who's a very he's a revolutionary attorney at the time. And it's because of him that I became an attorney some years ago, decades ago. He said, look, he gets warmly admired to come on campus, but we don't get to, the Chamber of Commerce doesn't get invited to campus. And he said, you know, he gets to say, you, you need to shoot guns and learn to fight the street on campus to students, but we don't get to say anything like that. You know, we're being discriminated against, is basically is what he's saying. And he's using the victimology that Charlie Kirk and all these people are using today. This is the playbook. The media tells us socialism is bad and liberalism is rotten. It enables critical theory. It calls for Medicare for all. We need harder fists. And Powell soon was called fascism as we go through here. And he says he really gets down on Yale. He's really pissed about Yale and the amount of students that are favoring the socialization of basic U.S. industries. Um, he calls out Milton Friedman in Chicago. Of course, he quotes him in his own behalf. And all of this is an attack. Remember, this is, is 37 years after the New Deal that he's written this. So he's, this, is a, this is called a clarion call. And he goes on now, just really wrapping up here, because I know that I just need to speak. He says, that, look, people are setting the rich against the poor, a business against the people. This is the cheapest and most dangerous kind of politics, he says. Well, of course, because Powell understands it's called a class struggle. That has been the history of the world. Is being the rich against the poor. And his class had to arm themselves. They had to weaponize culture to win, to take back. We were winning in the 70s. We meaning those of us that stood for ideas that were at least a bit more liberal than what he's talking about. Let me put it out. He says the apathy and default of business is one big issue and it goes into a tirade in his business. Uh, he says, look, GM, a column recently in the Wall Street Journal 
says, remember the GM, why not fight back? Okay. And it basically he talks about this uh, article is why don't why don't why don't we fight back as businessmen in general? Of course, GM was brought up because of wildcat strikes. The auto workers were going out every day. They couldn't make an automobile. So he he, he mentions Ralph Nader, and he, he spends a lot of time in the Powell memo against Ralph Nader, who's still alive as you well know. He says that Nader is no good for business. That he hates business. That he all he wants is regulation. He's a, he's a radical, plain and simple. And, uh, and that, that what we need to do is we need to, 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 to bring the responsibility of business executives together. So what should be done, he asks, which is an interesting question to be asked because that's what he says. What specifically should be done? That's a question that Lenin asked, okay, so in his book. So it's, it's interesting that he asks it. Um, it's a subtle reference to Lenin, I think, is really what he's saying. What should be done? And he puts together a, basically a manual, an operating manual for businessmen uh, to put together all these right-wing uh, foundations uh, and to take the last 40, uh, 50 years, 51 years to get to the point where we're, we are now today. And that includes everything from mailers to um, going on foot. I don't want to read old memo to you, but I do encourage people to bring it up. It's an operational menu that's being used today. It is why we have the Heritage Foundation. It is why we have these billionaires. They're fighting amongst themselves. The people in the CMP are fighting against the people in the CFR. The people in the CFR are fighting for a technocratic fascism where we can all get a nice vaccination passport, et cetera, et cetera. Okay? The people that are in the CNP are national Christian fundamentalist white segregationists. So they, they, they will dump the white segregation part if they can have the fascists. So that's kind of where I'm going to stop right now because I've been talking for too long. I, I do want to say a quick thing. Those were well said, Danny. Go ahead, John. I do want to say, I want to say one thing, one quick thing to that. Um, yes, the CFR fights the CMP and the CMP fights the CFR. But the true elite of both sides are in both groups, and they steer what the people do below them as puppeteers to a puppet. I agree with you, Jim. And I'm going to talk. We're, we're going to talk. We're going to. I'm going to talk about that. You know, later that many of these, the, the true elite, they fund both sides and have them fight. It's kind of like the trading places one dollar bet. They're cross dressers. They're cross dressers. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so it's uh, it's generally agreed the so-called new right grew out of a small quote-unquote sewing circle of wealthy donors. These included uh, the after mentioned or previously mentioned Richard Mellon Scafe of the storied Mellon family of Pittsburgh, the infamous Koch brothers, the Smith Richardson family, the Olin family of NYC, Harry and Lynn Bradley in Milwaukee, and the Coors family. Now, a lot has been said and written about Scafi, and rightly so, as well as the Koch family, and I don't want to dwell too much on that topic here. John, what can you tell us a bit about some of the lesser-known donors, namely the Olin family, the Bradleys, and the Smith-Richardson family? All right, so let's start with the Olin family. So John M. Olin was a chemical engineer at his father's Western Cartridge Company. In 1935, Western Cartridge was acquired by Winchester Repeating Arms Company for uh, weapon manufacturing. Um, and then Olin would later become president of Olin Industries. Um, it's kind of like a chemical-based uh, producing company. 
Um, and uh, the John M. Olin Foundation was established in 1953, uh, and it was founded to support, uh, you know, numerous right-wing causes uh, across the globe. Now, interestingly enough, before I name many of the institutions that the John M. Olin Foundation had funded, um, it's one interesting thing that came across as far as Olin's work was that uh, the foundation uh, worked directly with the United States Central Intelligence Agency uh, during the Cold War to uh, fund, you know, anti-communist right-wing propaganda within the United States of America. Um, so, of course, the CIA has always worked for its vested interests and the interests of the uh, elite, too, as well. Um, so, again, again, it shouldn't be surprising to anyone listening here on the farm uh, that the CIA, you know, would work with a, you know, right uh, financier uh, to spread propaganda because they control both sides. But like I was mentioning earlier to Danny, uh, the um, John M. Olin uh, Foundation, um, they funded both sides of the world order. They, they funded, uh, which would be, would be more court of the techno-fascists Danny talked about. Some people would, you know, quote unquote, label them as progressive uh, though I disagree with that labeling, uh, but they would, you know, they funded, uh, for example, the Brookings Institution, the Council on Foreign Relation. Uh, now, the Project for New American Century, PNAC, which they also funded, half of the members were CMP members, the other half were Council on Foreign Relation members. It's kind of like PNAC was a mixture of the two groups uh, to push uh, the 9-11 narrative and the, and the, the, the false war on terror. Uh, so we have uh, that aspect as well, uh, and they have, you know, did fund numerous, uh, you know, right-wing groups like the American Enterprise Institute, uh, the Council for International Policy, the Heritage Foundation, Manhattan Institute, the Claremont Institute, um, and um, also the Federalist Society. They were a major, actually. The 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 John and Mullen uh, Foundation was a major early supporter and backer of the Federalist Society. So of course, from the Federalist Society even himself, most people would actually recognize many Supreme Court justices uh, that were former uh, members of, of the Federalist Society, which would be, you know, Brett Kavanaugh, Neil Gorsuch, uh, Council for National Policy member, and of course, involved in the Franklin scandal, uh, who was good friends with Lawrence E. King and refused to denounce him, Clarence Thomas, uh, John Roberts, Samuel Alito, and of course, Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, so we have that aspect. Um, as far as the Federalist Society and the backing of uh, conservative uh, judges. Not, um, not to mention the 1,400 appointed by Trump. Yes, yes. Um, so, you know, it, when people rail against the Federalist Society, they have every right to do so. Um, and, of course, um, also, I guess, need to mention, too, uh, uh, John M. Uh, Olin Foundation support for Charles Murray. Of course, Charles Murray... Uh, wrote the bell curve. And then with there, you have Council for National Policy member um, and uh, my uh, senator for North Carolina at one time, and I'm not proud of this at all, uh, Jesse Helms and his connections to, uh, to, to Murray. Uh, of course, uh, Tucker Carlson uh, platform boosted uh, Charles Murray recently. Uh, Tucker Carlson tonight, because of course he did, because Tucker Carlson is a horrible human being. Uh, so, I mean, you have, you know, that aspect too, as well of Charles Murray's uh, um, bell curve still being pushing today to a modern conservative audience. Um, and so, I mean, yeah, Allen, uh, he founded, funded, should I say, um, both sides of, of think tanks, global think tanks uh, of, of the world order. Um, and, 
you know, funded a lot of nefarious uh, think tanks and groups uh, that have, you know, kind of many people in those groups have controlled uh, policy, when I say it's policy for, for, for decades. Um, and of course, you know, Danny, you mentioned uh, Council for National Policy member William E. Simon, uh, who was a Knight of Malta. Uh, he was advisory committee of AmeriCares. Of course, uh, Robert uh, McCauley was a CMP in AmeriCares. Uh, had a lot to do with um, around the Iran-Contra affair and supplying of, 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 uh, of um, quote-unquote, uh, um, you know, care packages uh, per se uh, to the Contras. Um, but uh, Simon, um, he was a 25-year president of the Olin Foundation. Um, and he the was the treasurer, the treasurer of the United States. Yes, he was. Um, and, uh, and the Olin Foundation as well, uh, which is rare of most of these foundations, actually supposedly closed in 2005 after John Olin's death. Most of these foundations continue after the founder is deceased. In the case of this foundation, it supposedly closed um, uh, during that time period uh, after, after his death. Um, so, you know, again, most people have heard of the Cokes. Most people have heard of the Coors, you know, Russ Bellant wrote the Coors Connection, excellent book. Um, you know, but many few people have actually heard of, of the Holland Foundation. And just um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that they, they throw money at NPR as well. Uh, I missed that, but it wouldn't surprise me in the slightest bit. It wouldn't surprise me in the slightest bit. That's the case. Um, I mean, again, the next think tank um, I'm going to discuss is, is um, the Smith Richardson uh, Foundation. Um, and uh, now, like, like the Olin Foundation, they funded both sides. Now, some of these foundations will fund either kind of like the conservative side of, of the world order, the right side of the world order, the right side of fascism. And then but then some of them will fund strictly the left side. Uh, but, but the true elite, they'll fund both. Uh, so in 1935, Henry Smith Richardson Jr., his wife, Grace Jones Richardson, founded the Smith Richardson Foundation. His father, Lunsford Richardson, was a pharmacist from Selma, North Carolina, which isn't too far from me, and founded uh, the Vicks Chemical Company. So if anybody's ever used a Vicks Vapor Rub, uh, that came from uh, the, the, Smith, uh, the Richardson family. Um, and so um, it was his, his, uh, his son, uh, Hen uh, Henry Smith Richardson Jr., uh, who renamed a Vicks to, to Vapor Rub and expanded the cells greatly away from the Greensboro, North Carolina area to the global juggernaut it was today. And then there was a huge um, kind of like controversy when they eventually sold off, I want to say it was the 80s, uh, to Procter & Gamble. Um, of course, Foster Gamble, who has supposedly renounced his, um, um, I guess, heir as heir to the, the, to the uh, Procter fortune, uh, Rukus and I have discussed with Arturo uh, that he's gone on to be a major new ager uh, who yokes with Alex Jones and David Icke, uh, among others, and um, is kind of pushing this Thrive movement with Barbara Marks Hubbard um, and um, seems to be pushing uh, many uh, kind of uh, awakening narratives that we see today in the modern alternative truth community. Um, so, uh, you know, back to the Richardson family. So in, in 1973, uh, um, R. Randolph Richardson, they called him Randy, uh, started uh, uh, the, the Richardson Foundation to finance numerous think, uh, think tanks for decades. 
Uh, Randy has served in the United States military in World War II. Uh, Bill Crystal uh, said Randy was an important, unheralded figure in the conservative intellectual movement for decades. Of course, uh, Crystal, William Crystal's Council for National Policy member. Um, Randy kept the funding uh, of the Smith Richardson Foundation at, you know, secretive as much as possible. Um, and, and I got a, actually something I want to read here uh, that was written in Natural, uh, National Review by a CMP member, Larry Kudlow, uh, who was part of the Trump administration. Uh, here's a little bit of insight that we can get into it uh, from, from, a, from a, a, an, because an obituary. He wrote titled, uh, Randy Richardson, Conservatism's Banker. Uh, so he wrote that, um, like uh, William F. Buckley Jr., uh, Richardson believed in a free society and free markets and a strong defense uh, to defeat communism. So there you have uh, peace through strength, which Ronald Wilson Reagan had, had made his mantra, uh, which is now surprisingly the mantra of the phony left that you'll see on Twitter, who are now saying peace for strength when it comes to Biden standing up for Putin over the Ukraine. Uh, so now they're going around uh, heralding uh, peace through strength. That's interesting they choose to pick up that mantra because I thought they hated Ronald Wilson Reagan for the normal numerous war crimes that he uh, perpetrated against people uh, around the globe, but I, I digress there. Um, so the um, Smith-Richardson Foundation um, changed U.S. political map to say the principles of conservatism came to completely dominate liberalism and expose all of its flaws and failures, which is very interesting because that was also the mantra of the Council for National Policy uh, wow. in 1981. Uh, uh, Woody Jenkins, who was a, um, a state congressman from Louisiana, I think, uh, he very much echoed that same... Right. He echoed that same sentiment about the CMP of how it was going to replace the CFR, and that's exactly what they were going to do: was they were going to, you know, dominate um, the presidency of the United States of America and and, and uh, uh, Congress uh, for decades to come. So it's very interesting. Kind of echoes uh, same thing that Lewis Woodby Jenkins was pushing. Um, so the um, Smith Richardson Family Foundation funded Radio Free Europe, Radio Free Liberty, Radio Liberty, should I say? American Spectator, the Federalist Society, there we have the Federalist Society again, Manhattan Institute, Foreign Policy Research Institute, American Enterprise Institute, Heritage Foundation, Enterprise Institute, um, Rand Corporation, the Brookings Institution, the Council on Foreign Relations, the Council for National Policy, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and of course, the Atlas uh, Economic Foundation. So there we have, again, another uh, elitist um, uh, foundation funding funding both sides of the world order right. uh, for the right. for and, the elite to continue to screw us over. Go ahead, Danny. I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say. No, you're right. And if you if you ticked off the names of those organizations, I was immediately drawn back to the Powell report because Powell makes it very clear that this needs to be done surreptitiously, and that um, the, the the chamber should probably not come right out and do it, and that these proxy groups be set up. And that's basically what you're describing. All this money is going to these groups. It's just this big network of funneling money. Yeah, yeah, a lot, a lot. Of, it is through the United States, you know, uh, black projects. I would assume through the State Department, the CIA, among others. Um, and they're all in, they're all incestuous with each other. I mean, we know Radio uh, Free Europe and Radio Liberty uh, uh, pumps a lot of, of, of pro United States propaganda around the world in the course of the modernization of the Smith-Munn Act under the Obama administration. Uh, now you can listen to that propaganda here at home. 
Uh, and of course, you know, Radio Free, uh, Radio Free, Radio Liberty, and and uh, Radio Free Europe, and even Radio Free Asia were all very much uh, pumping propaganda for the election of Donald Trump. That's uh, right. So, you know, they're run by the Board of Governors, which is run by the CIA. But an interesting fact: the Tor Tor Project is also part of the Board of Governors. And so the people that were working for the Tor Project were really military contractors. And that brings us to the you know the whole notion of a. They, they hid behind Radio Free Europe and Radio Free Asia. It's been transformed. It's been captured now. And you're right. It's being used against us. Yes. 100% yes. Now it's, it's able to um, spread its propaganda on American citizens. And, and Obama had a lot to do with that. So, yeah, he's our guy, too, just like any other president. Is. Uh, so it's just, I mean, it just continues on and on. Um, and so let's and see. And, and Bill Clinton, too. <laughs> yes, yes. He, he, they're all for us. And, and, and uh, Biden, you know, Biden's for us, too. They're all, yeah. they're all uh, great men. It uh, doesn't matter uh, which, uh, you know, if, if you're a Republican, you love the conservatives. If you're a Democrat, you love uh, the, uh, the Democratic candidates for presidency because, you know, they're all serving the interests of their people. And, uh, if, you know, red team, blue team. Let's, let's go team. Yes. All right. So, Russ, you uh, you literally wrote the book on the Coors family. So what spurred them to become such a fixture in right wing politics? <clears throat> well, uh, the uh, uh, one of the Coors ancestors uh, migrated from Germany, just like a number of beer manufacturers, Strohs and others, uh, to escape the draft in Germany in the 1800s, I think it was and uh, late 1800s and uh, set up the family. And uh, they were um, inclined to write us politics um, from uh, whatever outlook they have. They were uh, the elder Kerr, Coors, uh, the son of the one who immigrated, I believe, uh, was a uh, funder and supporter of the John Birch Society, distributed their literature at public uh, meetings and so forth <laughs> that he attended um, and uh, inculcated the family uh, going forward, you know, uh, uh, from that right wing perspective. Uh, <clears throat> naturally, everything that uh, went off on the uh, in the world of uh, change in terms of uh, 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 women, political economy, uh, social justice, uh, they were against. Um, and uh, they, they were they were and they were the ones that got Paul Weirich involved. Uh, Paul Weirich, you know, it started out of Milwaukee and he was influenced by uh, a businessman named Wrench. R-E-N-C-H. And, um, you know, a lot of stuff comes out of Milwaukee, you know, uh, as like the Olin Foundation, you know, it comes out of uh, at least Wisconsin, um, the southeastern portion of Wisconsin. And uh, uh, they, they, the course connected to him when uh, uh, Paul Weirich, uh, um, was uh, working for Senator Gordon Allett from, uh, from uh, Colorado, and uh, and he was developing his, the strategies for changing elections and, and in favor of right wing candidates, and you know doing more than um, 
the, uh, the right had been doing in, to try and develop new strategies for winning elections. And the Coors liked what he was doing and they connected up with him and uh, pulled him off of out of the leg, uh, Senate and uh, used him to set up the Heritage Foundation in 1971 or uh, 73, excuse me, 71. Uh, but, um, and then in 74 set up the, uh, what became the Free Congress Foundation. At that time it was called Committee for the Survival of a Free Congress. And, uh, and Weirich in turn, you know, starts birthing strategies like the moral majority. You know, he was the key guy getting Falwell uh, politicized and working with the uh, right wing movements. Um, Weirich, uh, and I, I, I say this in uh, Coors book, so you know it, but um, perhaps uh, some of the uh, folks who will be listening to this program uh, don't know, but he uh, said that he grew up in a family that followed uh, uh, Father Charles Coughlin. And of course, Coughlin was a, uh, was a, a Nazi priest. Uh, you know, he gave, uh, he, he had a, a weekly radio show on CBS radio uh, across the country where he uh, was denouncing uh, FDR and uh, uh, using literally broadcasting speeches without attributing it to the author, uh, adopting using the language as if it was their own, but it was actually transcripts from um, uh, Heinrich Himmler and, uh, and uh, folks straight out of uh, Nazi Germany. And he was, um, you know, uh, I supportive of uh, the Christian Front and Gerald L. K. Smith and you know, uh, those various uh, uh, pro-Nazi uh, formations, uh, America first and try, trying to uh, keep the United States uh, away from war against the Axis powers. Uh, so that, that was uh, Weirich's inspiration. And he basically said his, his father trained him in political discussions at the dinner table and all this. And it, it really came out of his family, and they they connected up with the the right wing in their geographic area, and that took them to Coors and took them, uh, you know, uh, all over the world to the point where he was or he was he was work uh, one of the people key business people who uh, was uh, engaged with him was uh, 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 Creeble. Uh, why am I blanking on his last name at the moment? I'm forgetting. It's Creeble. He's a, he was a CMP member. Yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, I'm trying to just remember his last name, first name. I'm just blanking on it momentarily. I, uh, uh, Robert Creeble, I believe it was. Uh, but he was uh, he was there at the beginning to fund the Heritage Foundation. He was there for the uh, Committee for the Survival of a Free Congress, and in the '90s, they launched efforts uh, under Glasnost to go into the Warsaw Pact countries and into Russia and start identifying uh, through the Orthodox Church, uh, Orthodox Church networks and uh, through other networks uh, that had been uh, uh, set up the ways to re-engineer politics in, uh, in the former Warsaw Pact areas. And uh, 
they brought in, you know, the whole, you know, a number of right wing operatives, uh, you know, with intelligence backgrounds and so forth. And Kreeble became the assistant chair, I think, or the vice chair of the National Endowment for Democracy to so that they were re really directing he was involved in directing CIA funds to all sorts of uh, operations that uh, destabilize regimes that the right wing was opposed to. They became they became really uh, deeply funded through intelligence operations, and then and then you find uh, you know foundation groups like Smith Richardson. I uh, John, I just um got an impulse to look at their 2019 grants recently uh went online and looked at it and and i see some of the stuff kind of stuff that i think tied into what uh Kreble and wyrick were doing i'm not absolutely certain yet but uh, you know but um you know they, they they were they're clearly funding all the uh cia stuff like the foreign policy research institute that they've always funded uh, Hoover Institution, the CFR, and uh, Atlantic Council, but also uh, the Jamestown Foundation, and which was doing operations in Belarus. And Russ, if I could jump in here just for a minute, yeah. because I know that you, you you pretty much wrote the book on this, and you and I would I would like to mention John Loftus's book as well for people who haven't read it. It was the secret war against the Jews in an unholy trinity. Loftus was a, a member of the government. He worked to uh, hunt down Nazi spies. Um, when you mention Weyrich, it's, it's important. That, first of all, uh, the, the, the ALEC was started in 1973. Uh, it's, it's important. It sprung from the Powell Amendment that was started in 71. The Heritage started in 73. Okay? Weyrich, of course, started, it helped start the CNP. But Weyrich's attachment to the Nazis, and I think uh, you know of this, is, is not through the Free Congress, but through the Hungarian-American Laszlo Pastor, the convicted oh. Nazi sympathizer who was active in the 1940s in the Hungarian Arrow Cross when he was collaborating with the Nazis. And then you had a, a board member or an editorial advisor on the Ukrainian Quarterly, okay, was once ran an article praising the Nazi Waffen-SS. We see this today. That's why this is so important that this Weyrich stuff be. Danny, I wasn't finished. I wasn't finished about talking about uh, Weyrich and Coors. <laughs> I know. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, okay. no, that's okay. I, I, but it's it's true. Um, and, you know. Um, well, there's the Nazi Northern League. There's the eugenicist Robert Pearson. There's the Pioneer League. There's the KK supported American Independence Party. Yeah. yeah, Pioneer Fund. Yeah. I mean, this is all part of this guy's career. Uh, yeah. uh, Howard Phillips, Richard Diggory, Ed McAder. I mean, he goes deep. He goes real, real deep. International Linguistic Center is set up by Nelson Bunker Hunt. Yeah, yeah, right. So I'll let you take the floor. I just want to. Oh, no, it's OK. I mean, uh, uh, Coors was giving uh, uh, direct funding to uh, to some of these operations. Uh, Pastor uh, came in uh, as an aide to uh, the Committee for the Survival of a Free Congress, but Roger Pearson comes in as an uh, as on the uh, publications board of the um, 
uh, Heritage Foundation in uh, the, the 70s. And Pearson is, is a, a straight uh, uh, Nazi eugenicist theoretician and uh, who, who wrote uh, a number of books on those subjects. And he, in one of his books, said that it was essential for those with superior genes and race to exterminate uh, people of lesser uh, genetic uh, quality, and otherwise, otherwise they commit racial suicide. So he was a he was not on the uh, what you call the uh, racist right. He was on the exterminationist right, and. Um, uh, Pearson was on the Heritage Foundation journals and on his journals, uh, which operated eventually when he moved to Washington, D.C., uh, from, uh, went from Britain to Montana for a while, worked, uh, taught in Montana, and then uh, wound up eventually settling in uh, Washington, D.C. with the Council on American Affairs and, um, and, and got picked up with that. And uh, by the uh, the later 70s, the Council on American Affairs became the actual uh, uh, American section of the World Anti-Communist League, which is a straight construct of the intelligence agencies. So he was he, he and he so he was representing the United States in this World Anti-Communist League until the Washington Post busted him and did a big thing. Paul Valentine did a big exposition on on Wackel and Roger Pearson at that time. And, uh, and then uh, eventually they bring Singlaub in, you know, who was, uh, who ran special operations group out of, in Vietnam, which was basically, you know, uh, uh, a terror assassination program operation in, uh, in Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia. And, um, uh, and uh, basically worked as he himself said, he worked basically for uh, uh, the army and for the CIA, you know, and so, you know, after, uh, after his Vietnam stint, he became an assistant uh, 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 deputy commanding general of the 8th Infantry Division in Europe. They took a lot of people who were in those like heavy psychological operations and transferred them into uh, NATO to keep them out of the United States for a while because so that they could kind of like readjust to society after being psychotic killers for a couple of years, you know? And, um, so, um, any rate, and then of course, uh, Singla, uh, works with the American security council, which, uh, again, that, that, uh, that got money from, uh, Coors and, uh, and many, many right-wing sources and, and primarily the, the military uh, industrial complex, the whole, the, the military contractors funded it because it lobbied for higher military budgets and uh, weapons programs of every sort. And, um, and they became part of the uh, uh, apparatus for organizing cadre. They, they, they set up the coalition for peace through strength. Uh, which had about 170 organizations in it, and uh, and used that as a grassroots base for organizing uh, uh, election activity. And Singlob and Daniel Graham, uh, the retired Air Force Lieutenant General, and uh, and others, uh, you know, just swept through the country, uh, you know, giving talks at Republican functions and wherever they could uh, to get Reagan elected, and. Uh, 
you know, that, uh, um, and during that time, Pearson, Pearson and the exterminationist side are, are still functioning in Washington, D.C. You know, they don't go away. And when, so when Reagan gets elected, they start running um, uh, grants to Roger Pearson through the Department of Education using a, a, a cutout funder, you know, so, he, so Pearson became basically uh, nominally a subcontractor in the Department of Education, which is how the CIA ran money to him. Russ, uh, yeah. can I ask you a question, if you don't mind? Yeah, go ahead. Um, uh, so would you say that the Counts for National Policy uh, directly uh, started the Pioneer Fund? Because I know that CNP member Jesse no. Helms no. Uh, was a direct uh, founder of uh, the Pioneer Fund. Pretty sure the Pioneer um, Fund was founded like what in the forties or fifties? In the thirties, I think. Thirties, yeah, funded, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was funded when uh, Draper Rock- had been around and funding this stuff. I think even before the Second World. I must be Rock- thinking about something else then. Well, Rock- the Pioneer Fund was funded by a textile manufacturer in Massachusetts in the thirties when the Rockefeller Foundation started moving away from eugenics funding, and. Uh, and he basically was funding all, all, all that kind of stuff, uh, you know, all the way up until, you know, our days. I haven't looked at the Pioneer Fund recently. No, yeah, you're right. Yeah, okay. it was with I wonder why. Preston Draper, who was the guy who really sponsored a lot of yeah. this stuff. That's right. Yeah, I'm thinking, of, I'm thinking of something that was directly, I have to go back and look, but there was there was something that, that um, Jesse Helms, with, with CNP, Tom Ellis funded some way to directly fund money to um, Charles Murray and the Bell Curve. Okay. I'll have to I'll have to find out the name of the. I must have gotten it confused. I don't know how I got confused with Pioneer Fund, but there was something similar name to it. I'll have to go back and look. There was some tie of the Pioneer Fund to that work. Uh, right. Yeah. There were the only ties because I was writing uh, books at the time challenging. Of that work, but I don't think it was the uh, 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 Pioneer Fund. I think it was another front cutout organization similar. Uh-huh. Tom Ellis was on the board of the Pioneer Fund. <laughs> the Pioneer, Pioneer. You, you mentioned it, Reclusive. It, it was uh, Kistler, a uh, Swiss physicist who came to the United States in '51, who worked for Bell Aircraft and he did a, a quartz crystal uh, measurement technology. And he, it was, he, he was actually the only uh, person left to fund the Pioneer Fund uh, until 2004 uh, when he reportedly uh, helped fund the Ansari X Prize to some space vehicle for $10 million. But uh, the Pioneer Fund has been around for a long time. Yeah, yeah. It, sure has. Yeah, yes, it has. It was my writing. I, I write like a, should be a, a doctor. Uh, so no, it was just that um, Jesse Helms and uh, Ellis through the Pioneer Fund, uh, they kind of because they were um, involved with it at the time period um, during the uh, '80s had uh, uh, pushed money to fund uh, Charles Murray uh, and the um, and the um, Bell Curve uh, yeah. book. Of course, Charles Murray too was also. Um, uh, it was one of the major think tanks that we had discussed that he was, uh, he's a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. So mm-hmm. I want to make that known to as well. Mm-hmm. You know, it, I, I think, you know, uh, 
uh, we should uh, inform or remind people that in the 1970s, when this was going on with Roger Pearson being involved and uh, uh, Weirich having set up the uh, uh, Heritage Foundation, that the Heritage Foundation was, you know, uh, uh, in the guise of a think tank, but it was also organizing white supremacy. They worked with the uh, with the Klan in West Virginia in a right. uh, textbook fight. Um, and they had uh, other ties to, um, you know, white supremacy in the 70s that, that were uh, quite overt. And, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, the, the Pioneer Fund, you know, was funding uh, people like William Shockley, Arthur Jensen, as well as Pearson. And the Heritage Foundation was in, so in support of these people. So well, in, the, in the modern day, they're funding American Renaissance. That's Jared Taylor's. Uh, yes, there you go. Magazine website. Um, yeah, and um, mm -hmm. you had uh, Gavin McGinnis and uh, David Duke and Don Black, I think, if I remember correctly. They wrote uh, for American Renaissance. Um, that, that, so, sounds, that sounds about right. Yeah. So, yeah, the Pioneer Fund was, it was you know, Tom Ellis and um, Jesse Helms ever since the 1980s through the 90s. Bill Curve was written in the 90s. Uh, they were working uh, in tandem uh, to, um, I mean, pretty much right, spread uh, extermination, you know, racialite, you know, uh, yeah. ideas yeah. to the masses, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they were the lobby, the, they were the force uh, pushing for Operation Condor in Latin America. Well, let's be honest, you know, the eugenics movement, it has its origin in the United States, as well as England. That's right. That's and it was copied by it was copied by Adolf Hitler. I mean, almost to a T. And um, um, uh, if you want to look at the atrocious uh, history of the United States uh, in its treatment of the Japanese or the Chinese or or, or, or the, the the disabled, uh, I mean, it's it's all there. These organizations were not only strong up until the end of the World War. Uh, at the end of World War II, after the concentration camp pictures came up, uh, people kind of stepped back from eugenics. But eugenics never stopped. And in fact, one of the leading eugenicists in the world is Bill Gates. And so I just wanted to just make a point because I, it, it's just a reference. It came back to John had said, and it's not a criticism, John. It's just a, a point for my own sanity is that um, there really is no left or right anymore. I, I, I mean, there is a theoretical level, but the Brookings Institution is not a liberal organization. It's right. what has happened is that the right has moved towards so far toward fascism that Richard Nixon would be considered a liberal today. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, he was for the environment, EPA. I mean, he was for wage and price controls. Uh, you know, he loosened us from the dollar. I mean, he opened to China. I mean, this guy would be considered, you know, today he would be considered a Bob, Bobby Kennedy. So, uh, you know, we've gone so far to the right that, I mean, to the left is so far in the distance. And that's one of the tragedies. Yeah, yeah, I think Brookings uh, followed the neocons to the right. Of course, they're, they've always been right wingers. They're all about the military industrial complex. Yep. But now, now capitalism is having a terrible problem. And then I'll give up the floor because I know we should have other questions. It's having a terrible problem. Is it, 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 it can no longer maintain itself. It's in its, it's in its, it's, it's in its penumbra years. It's in its twilight years. Why? It's, it's a crisis of overproduction. 
if too much is being produced and none of their people have any money to buy anything and credit is credited out and there is no more credit and there is no more money and it's falling apart. And, and, and this is why fascism is a, an electable item for the ruling class because it's a managerial uh, system. It's a way to manage failing capitalism. That's what it's always done. It's managed failing capitalism. It doesn't appear on the scene. It manages a, an economy that's failing for the elites. And so in America, we've got two fascisms going, in my judgment. The Biden administration is a fascist administration, okay, in my judgment. And, and the Trump administration is by far a fascist administration. But then that gets us back to the definitions. And folks can go back to show number one and hear those definitions. They're all fascists. They're all fascists. They're all fascists. They're I just fascists. want to mention, too, um, Peter Till's Hereticon uh, that just went off. Uh, I'm going to cover it on my channel. Uh, he had a eugenist on there, uh, a woman named uh, Diana Fleischman. Uh, they gave a talk of, you're probably a eugenicist. Uh, so Peter Till's making eugenics uh, fashionable again. Sure. So, thought I was well, invited to that. Uh, if I could also interject here to sort of bring this together and uh, I think maybe put some uh, perspective into like how all of this ties together in terms of the shifting of perspective that started to unfold in the 60s and 70s. I think a really crucial aspect of this that isn't uh, really talked about. In fact, Russ's book, Old Nazis, New Right, and the Republican Party is one of the only works to address it. Uh, and that was a body called the Institute uh, for American Strategy, which uh, grew out of the American Security Council. So one of the big guys in that was a political warfare guru and Rhodes Scholar named Frank Burnett, uh, who was really big in organizing a lot of these donors that we've been talking about. Uh, he you know, did a lot of the uh, actual funding for the Smith Richardson family uh, through their foundation and also Richard Mellon Scaife and uh, the Coors family as well. Uh, but within the Institute of American Strategy, um, as we were able to see once we got some of the Francis McNamara documents uh, from the uh, body itself. A lot of the uh, donors of the right wing movement in general were organized through this body, which was essentially principally concerned with political and psychological warfare. Uh, you also see some of the old guard families like the Hearst family and the Regnery family, which uh, you know were behind the famous publishing house and are still around funding elements of the alt right and so forth. Now, this is somewhat fairly well known, but another aspect of this that uh, really doesn't get a lot of attention is the fact that um, the IAS grew out of this thing called the National Military Industrial Conferences that were being held in the 1950s. Uh, you know, you had elements of the military working with major corporations and the Pentagon and the National Security Council and all these people to come up with essentially political warfare doctrine to indoctrinate first the elites and then the American public at large. Now, one of the people participating in this was a guy called Colonel James Monroe, who at the time headed the Society for the Investigation of Human Ecology. Uh, this was one of the bodies that funded MKUltra, and uh, Monroe was one of the guys who was tasked with overseeing this, and uh, later he started to collaborate with Barnett on projects related to the IAS. So there's a strong possibility that some of these uh, projects were tied into essentially the behavior modification research that was being funded by the uh, Investigation for Human Ecology. Now, this brings into kind of a broader topic and something that's never really been talked about before with all of this. So the Institute, or excuse me, the Society for the Investigation of Human Ecology was involved in funding a lot of social science research. 
as was the CIA and a lot of uh, other aspects of this kind of MK Ultra woo woo stuff. And this is very important. You know, this pumped a ton of money into anthropology, into psychology, and more importantly, it led to an arcane discipline known as behavioral science, uh, which was really set up by the Rand Corporation and the Ford Foundation in the 1950s. And this is important for something that we'll get into in a later episode when we get into Peter Thiel and so forth. But there's a reason why uh, Cambridge Analytica grew out of something called the Behavioral Sciences Dynamic Institute and why the um, Army interrogation officers uh, working at Guantanamo Bay were uh, detailed to something called the Behavioral Science Research Council or something to that effect. Uh, behavioral science is a major buzzword for this kind of research, guys. All right, but a big thing about this that nobody really understands is that the CIA was actually, from what I can tell, a minor player in this. The big one was the Pentagon, which pumped insane amounts of money into this stuff. And a big driving force behind this were the special operations forces. One of the big bodies was an arcane outfit known as the Office of the Chief of Psychological Warfare, which was later renamed the Office of the Chief of Special Warfare. What this body was, was essentially the precursor to the Army Special Operations Command. And it pumped tons of money through an outfit called the uh, Special Operations Research Organization, throughout, which was tied to the American University throughout the 1950s and 60s and all of this kind of research. And it did a lot of interesting things like Project Camelot, which was one of the first times that data mining and computers were used to do predictive computer modeling, which was later embraced by Cambridge Analytica. Now, it wasn't the only game in town either. At the time, ARPA was also funding a lot of this stuff through a counterinsurgency program known as Project Agile, which was headed by a man named William Goodell. But the thing about all of this is, even though Agile was a part of ARPA, Goodell uh, was not reporting to ARPA's hierarchy, nor was Agile under the command of uh, ARPA. No. It was under the command of a body called the Office of Special Operations, which was in the Pentagon and one of the precursors to the Special Operations Command of today. Now, the important thing about this to tie it all together is the man who headed that outfit at the time was named General Edward G. Lansdale. Lansdale, actually, and I should also point out the Office of the Chief of Special Warfare that was doing this other research, it fell under the command of the Office of Special Operations. So Lansdale was in control of all of this research. In this capacity, he was pumping millions of dollars throughout the late 50s and the early 60s into this kind of research, guys, to say nothing of this early stuff involving computer modeling and so forth. And it's really interesting because Lansdale actually became a major figure in the Institute for American Strategy, this arcane body that set up political warfare that helped craft the doctrine of fourth generation warfare, which Frank Burnett was an early purview, uh, early uh, supporter of, and also helped put together this funding circle. And it also set up something called the Freedom Study Center, which helped train a lot of the cadres that helped uh, bring Reagan to power later on. So Lansdale was doing all of this and helping set up all this uh, anthropology research and so forth. But there's another interesting thing about Lansdale and some of his other accolades. One of them who served under him in Vietnam was a guy who went by the name of Daniel Ellsberg. Daniel Ellsberg of the Pentagon Papers fame. I want to tell you guys something here about uh, Daniel Ellsberg. This is what he told journalist Max Boot when he was asked about his old uh, boss Lansdale around 2015. He told Boot, quote, uh, this is from the book, The Road Not Taken. I loved Lansdale, he declared later in a comfortable home in the hills near Beverly Hills, California, near Whitehead, 
uh, in his 80s, but still handsome, vulnerable, and intense in his 80s. He was a father figure to me. I really revered him and continued to have the same warm feeling. That never changed. I just felt like the other members of the team did. It was a cult. He was the leader of the cult, and I was a member of that cult. Daniel Ellsberg, among other things, is the brother-in-law of Barbara Marks Hubbard, uh, incidentally. He's also been a guy who's worked uh, with Barbara Kayser of Cambridge Analytica and a lot of these other whistleblowers, so-called, connected to WikiLeaks, incidentally. A guy who just said he was in the cult of Edward Lansdale and loved the man. Edward Lansdale of the Political Warfare uh, Bureau of the Institute for American Strategy and Edward Lansdale, the man who helped set up predictive modeling. Well, you know, we talked about Lansdale shortly in our first episode. Lansdale is also one of the people that got his hands on Golden Lily money. Well, that's he also was, another, I think, kind of debatable point, too, when you look at some of the other things Lansdale was doing. But I want to, don't want to get into that too much here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That whole Institute for American Strategy was set up expressly by a National Security Council directive. I mean, he was, he was actually operating as an uh intelligence operation and uh, another big part of this was the rockefellers too because they were part of this psychological strategy or psychological yeah. warfare board and also they were the ones who were funding the society for investigation of human ecology uh, nelson and lawrence rockefeller would have been the ones who signed off where a lot of this social science research funding was going to um so yeah this is this is a big aspect of a lot of this folks that people don't really understand but when well, we get you know these, these social changes, a lot of it comes from the way they were able to warp our you know, worldview, essentially. And it was through funding social sciences, through using it for political and psychological warfare. Mm -hmm. Right. And this gets back to that book that I recommended to you, it's called I Will Be Done, because they weaponized the anthropology departments in the 1950s and in the 1960s. And the, weapon, and the weaponization was done by the Rockefellers. Uh, who were the head of the Inter-American uh, of, of Affairs in Latin America in 1974. Um, uh, they used uh, Cameron Townsend and the SILs uh, to uh, send uh, uh, anthropologists and missionaries down to the third wor world to teach them uh, the message of free enterprise. And so uh, it's, it's not an unusual story. We didn't cover the 50s in, in depth, but it's something... It happened a lot in the 50s. It, one of the things I'd like to uh, just uh, bring a little closure to on the Institute for American Strategy, it, 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 that um, uh, I think I understated probably in my book, is that it was set up by the National Security Council as a, as a covert operation. Uh, but um, Lansdale was working with the American Security Council that had been set up in 1955 uh, by the uh, Sears Roebuck guy um, who headed America first and was pro-Nazi. Um, he set that up in 1955, but they said Robert Wood, I think. Yeah, Robert Wood. Yeah, thanks. Um, he, he, and uh, they were working side by side. So the American Security Council was uh, was tied to the intelligence operations. And then after Lansdale went on to other things, the Institute for American Strategy, which was a project of the National Security Council, changed its name to American Security Council Foundation. And so this operation that we talked about where they formed the Coalition for Peace Through Strength and swept 
all all through the country in the, this election activity to elect Ronald Reagan was coming directly out of an intelligence operation. Yeah. And I mean, this is, you know, and it's really important because, you know, to understand this, because you see so many, a guy who just drives me absolutely insane about this is Thomas Ridd, uh, who is himself a massive disinformation agent while trying to pose as an authority on it. And he tries to argue that essentially the United States abandoned any real psychological or political warfare, especially on our own public around the late 1950s, which is just utter garbage. I mean, it, totally. what happened is it was, you know, all put under the private sector and then bodies like, you know, the Institute for American Strategy, the ASC, and it was a massive, massive psychological operation. And it was using, you know, again, the mm -hmm. same kind of methods that they were experimenting with and stuff like MK Ultra and projects that a lot of you have probably never heard of, like Cambridge, or excuse me, Project mm -hmm. Cambridge, the Project Camelot, Project ComCom, and some of the other ones that we'll probably get into when we get into the rise of surveillance capitalism towards the end of this series. But I mean, this is, you know, this is an important aspect of all of this. Bro. Steve, how does this guy claim to know what's going on uh, so authoritatively inside the CIA? How does he claim to know this? Which guy? Tom, this Tom uh, guy who said that the psychological psychological operations programs ended in the 1950s thomas ridd uh, <laughs> uh i don't know he apparently because the cia had started to cut back their political warfare activities after the well see that's the first thing is he acts like the cia was the only one who ever did psychological or political warfare uh operations he totally ignores all of the military stuff which is you know they do a ton of this crap which nobody really talks right. about yeah um it, it's it's really a heinous book on a lot of levels. And then on top of that, I mean, he essentially tries to blame some of the researchers um, uh, from covert action, I think, for the deaths of the CIA officers in the 1970s when their you know, names were outed and all this other kind of stuff. It's just, it's really a sickening work. Um, but anyway, I don't want to get too sidetracked on Rid. I can rant about him some other time. Uh, all right, so... Reagan comes to power. Nowadays, the significance of this is lost a little bit. When a similar candidate, Barry Goldwater, ran in 1964, he was absolutely crushed. Uh, Reagan would end up as one of the most popular presidents of the 20th century. This was a striking on a lot of levels, guys, most notably the blatant and striking influence Nazism had on his presidency. I mean, he laid briefs on the graves of SS officers, you know, I mean, literally. Uh, Danny, can you get into this a bit for us? Very important that we understand Reagan and the Nazis through Otto von Bolschwing. Okay, Otto von Bolschwing uh, was a Nazi, okay? who came into the United States, brought to the United States by Alan Delvis. Uh, he was the president of a high technology investment firm in Sacramento uh, in the 1970s. Uh, let me just say this. He told his friends that he worked for the Americans. His friends would ask him, what did you do during the war? He was German. He said, well, you worked for the Americans during the war. But then the United States government found out in the 50s, excuse me, in the 80s, uh, they began proceedings against him to deport him because he uh, was accused of Hitler persecution of European Jews and being an associate of uh, Adolf Eichmann. Um, the disclosures uh, blew him out. Um, the people that knew him, that hung around with him, 
Justice William A. Newsom, the father of the current governor of the state of California, who was an attorney for Getty Oil at the time. Okay. Help from the important one, Helene Von Dahm, President Reagan's personal secretary. Thomas A. Franzioli, banker to the Boston Cabot family, Fairchild Corporation, uh, uh, Warner Lambert Pharmaceutical, where, where Bolsinger ended up working. Uh, Otto ended up working Bolshevik there. Uh, he said he was a Gestapo prisoner during the war. He talked about his German past, told his interviewer he'd been a lawyer. Uh, he said he told he had been thrown in jail in 1942. All of this was lies. Okay. Von Bolshevik would not allow an interview. His attorneys would never allow him to interview, interview him. Uh, he was uh, basically ejected from the United States. He was ejected by the British. Um, he was escaped the Iron Guard, and he became an American spy. Um, he knocked on the door of the U.S. intelligence, and he said, I'm experienced. I have a ring operating. If you give me a paycheck, I'll make you happy. He was a miniature Reinhard Galen, and they think that Galen was actually helpful in getting him over here. Um, no doubt. Work over here. Um, just a few more things to mention about Von Bolshevik. He started a very strange company. In 1969, Bolshevik got a job in high technology in the United States. He was retained as an international business consultant by TCI, Sacramento firm. The company wanted to commercialize technology for development in Silicon Valley and monitor troop movements in the Arab-Israeli war in 67, something like that. So he moves to, to Palo Alto and he starts working for this company. Well, the company also declassified work for the Department of Defense. And so they all had to have security clearances. And they said, well, we gave Bolshevik a security clearance. We knew he was a Nazi, but he, had, he said he had contacts in Europe and so that he could help us. Well, he had contacts in Europe, uh, including German branch of official Manhattan Bank. And uh, Paul, he was really friends with uh, Paul Getty Jr.'s son, the oil billionaire. Um, he traveled and hung out with all these circles I've told you about. In 1970, T uh, TCI ran into trouble with the Department of Corporations. They found it was trading illegally. They suspended it. The stock was suspended. Uh, he tried to bail it out. He couldn't bail it out. The Justice Department closed it, and they prosecuted him. And uh, he admitted uh, that he was a member. The investigations haunted him. They said, were you a member of the Nazi Party? His answer, yes, 1932, I think, 45. Were you ever a member of the SF? Yes, from 41 to 42, I don't know. And with these words, that was the last fragment of Bolschwing. Last point, Helen von Dahm. Helen Von Dahm was Reagan's special assistant. She was the Reagan administration. She put together a list of potential staff for Reagan to pick and control all of his appointments, right? She was formerly the secretary, formerly the secretary for the Nazi German High Command. She had a similar capacity when she worked for Reagan when he was governor of California. Before working for Reagan, she worked with Reinhard Galen in the Abwehr Brigade in the German Secret Service. Okay, Reagan worked on top secret U.S. military projects, and he had to use Elaine's German translation skills back when he worked with the Nixon campaign and when he worked with TCI, this corporation, in 69. Right? Galen and a whole bunch of other broad, broad French Nazis were brought in by U.S. J. Edgar Hoover, and she was one of them. 
Helene's husband, very interesting in closing. Helene's husband was a German banker named Christian Van Dam. He was the vice president of Bank of America in La Paz, Bolivia, during the time of the Bolivian coup. Christian Van Dam, her husband, was linked to Martin Borman, Klaus Barbie, Joseph Mengele, the SS, Bolivian crack cocaine connection to South America. He funded $30 million loan to John DeLorean, who listeners, if they don't know who he was, was busted in the 70s for a $24 million cocaine ring. He was an auto manufacturer. Uh, one of his uh, uh, associates died by a heart attack. And uh, she picked Reagan's uh, uh, kitchen cabinet. Um, she eventually had to quit her post. Uh, she was married about four times, but she had a tryst with some guy and she was nominated to be the, the Reagan named her the ambassador to Austria, where she served for two years. And then she did resign. She's still alive in her 80s. God knows where she lives. And she was replaced by our friend, Mr. Lauder, okay, as the ambassador to Austria. Uh, listeners might remember that the passport that Jeffrey Epstein was found with, that he might have used to flee, was an Austrian passport that was gotten for him by Lauder. So Reagan's uh, White House is drenched, is drenched with this kind of stuff. While Reagan was president, um, uh, he was involved with a whole bunch of fascists from the United States. Um, Ignatius Belinsky, you might remember him uh, of, of, of Russ, of, yeah, uh, president yeah. of UCCA, honorary yeah. chair for Ukrainians for Russia. Um, and then there's, there's this guy, Bob Whitaker, uh, 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 who was from American Dissident Voices. He was uh, a, a, a Reagan appointee. He was also a Nazi. And somebody asked him in an interview, he said, I was a special assistant to the director of office and personnel for Reagan. Why is someone with such excellent establishment credentials, the interviewer asked, defending the white races you do in your work without apology or regret? Is that something that simply isn't done these days? Why do you do it? He said, I got a clearance. I can do what I want. Remind you of Gorka? Because that's where Sebastian Gorka, it's the same thing. It just keeps, it just keeps rhyming and rhyming. Another one here, John O'Kohler had to be replaced. He replaced Patrick Buchanan, who was a Nazi, of course. Buchanan was communication director for Reagan. He was replaced by John O'Kohler. Kohler had a membership in a Nazi youth organization at the age of 10. He had to be replaced. Todd Blodgett, the former White House aide to President Ronald Reagan, who later became affiliated with extremist groups he said he spent a lot of time with Von Brun in the 1990s. For those of you who don't know, Von Brun was an American man who perpetrated uh, the attack on the United States Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. in 2009. Um, he was friends with Von Brun. Uh, Blodgett uh, was, was hanging out with him. Blodgett's a fascist himself. In fact, Blodgett was a co-owner of Resistance Records. And Resistance Records is the world's largest neo-Nazi music label. Okay, now it's been bought out recently, right? but Blodgett worked as a full-time paid informant for the FBI as well. This guy's a Nazi, he's a white segregationist, he's working for the FBI, he's infiltrating the KKK, the skinheads, Holocaust deniers, and he ends up in, in, in Reagan administration. 
He's working with William Pierce, David Duke, Don Black, Ed Fields, um, Nick Griffin. I mean, I could go on with the people that are that were attached to Reagan's White House that were homegrown Nazis or Nazis that were brought in from 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 other areas. But I'll I'll leave the floor right now. Okay, so the CMP, it comes along at an interesting time in right-wing politics in these United States. Uh, the far right had achieved unprecedented electoral success under Reagan, but conversely, old war horses like the American Security Council were going into decline. And there were a lot of new organizations like the U.S. Global Security Council that held some prominence uh, for a few years before fading away. Russ, what was it about that era that made uh, it right for an organization like the CMP to take off, and how was it able to consolidate its power amidst so many rivals? Well, I, I think it would start with a uh, phenomenon like the John Birch Society. The John Birch Society made it uh, very clear that it was a uh, rightist movement to challenge the power of the uh, uh, Council for Foreign Relations and um, and the networks around them and that basically the whole, you know, try to convince that the whole uh, system was communistic and pro-communistic and uh, so that the movement that they were trying to create was to create a uh, polar opposite that would challenge the power of the establishment. At least that was the outlook that they fostered, and uh, um, and you know that then you had spinoffs like the Minutemen who took the John Birch stuff and turned it into uh, armed uh, armed uh, uh, resistance and tried uh, you know tried to go the paramilitary route, which was the logical outcome of the John Birch Society outlook. Um, so. When and that movement informed the you know the the Goldwater rights and uh, and and the right wing movements the Phyllis Schlafly's and uh, many in the right wing. Uh, um, I, I remember uh, I think in Richard Vigory's book he talked about you know what people read and in, uh, in, in their movements and they said you know they would have. Uh, uh, um, the American opinion, you know, the publication of the Birch Society and so forth, that it was widely read in uh, New Right circles. So I think that outlook, you know, created the consensus to form an alternative to a uh, covert entity to challenge the structure of power that they had been fighting as rightists for uh, the, in the prior decades. And the CMP uh, was seen as a counterpoint. And, you know, and I remember back there uh, many years ago that uh, there was some uh, tension in the organization when somebody who was a member of the Council for Foreign Relations was nominated for membership because that was considered a no-no among, among many in the, uh, in the CMP because they knew they were there to be a counterpoint to it, not a collaborator with it in their outlook at that time, you know? And in, I think that was probably in the 1980s that, you know, uh, you know, of course it was formed in 81, right? It started in 81. And so in its early years, it really saw itself 
as uh, creating a whole new power structure in this country to replace the existing power structures. Now, Russ, when did you uh, first hear about the CMP and what was it like during uh, covering it during the early days? Well, um, as you can probably guess, I never was able to get into any meetings. <laughs> it wasn't that easy to do. Um, but, um, you know, being around, you know, being at events with its, uh, you know, the Howard Phillips and the uh, uh, John Fishers and, uh, and Paul Weirich and being at, at those events, uh, you know, brought you into contact with some of the most energized funded parts of, of the, the CMP was, as you know, it, it, it was part organizers and it was part funders. Uh, didn't have any real contact with the funding part, but the organizers, uh, you know, you'd have to go to their organizational meetings, as, you know, to see and, and see who else was with them to get some idea of what might be the out, you know, the actions of the CMP and trying to trying to find out back then uh, what what the what kind of activity was coming out of say the conservative caucus or some of these other groups as a result of a cnp decision that that was uh that wasn't really very easy to do but you know uh you know the conservative caucus you know they, they had their bailiwicks they had the division of labor conservative caucus took up the uh, pro-apartheid solidarity work uh and the, the work in southern africa you know pushing uh Zavimbi and Holden Roberto and so forth, um, Budelese, um, and they uh, uh, they organized tours and they solicited uh, uh, right wingers to pay, you know through a, a a fee to be part of trips they would take every year to South Africa to meet with business leaders, military intelligence officials, and get all these briefings that you you couldn't get any other way. And so you had to be- uh, Hey, Russ, real quick, I want to mention yeah. um, some of the new information that we've gotten. Um, yeah. We've gotten some new documents that show that they were directly within CMP newsletters. And exactly what you're saying, that the Council for National Policy uh, directly met with many uh, South African uh, leaders within their government uh, mm -hmm. during the 1980s. They also met with, uh, interestingly enough, you know, they were very uh, uh, big in, you know, uh, keeping uh, Taiwan separate uh, from China. Uh, yeah. However, in those documents, we found out that they were also meeting with the Chinese government as well. Interesting. So they were meeting with both sides. Yeah. Well, it kind of tracks because I think China, um, uh, the People's Republic of China also was like subsidizing the apartheid government on South Africa a little bit on the side as well. There was, I think, a, I think it was a trade related to arms or something like that. Uh, but it was kind of interesting that they had at least some very subtle business ties with apartheid of all countries. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They, and more recent years, uh, they did a big contract with Eric Prince of Blackwater fame. Yes, and Eric Prince was a member of the Council for National Policy, remember? Yeah. yeah. Uh, the whole DeVos family is. Yeah, the whole Prince family and DeVos family. Yeah, Mo yes. the elder princes, of course, are no longer around, but, you yes. know, yeah, you're absolutely right. And uh, and the DeVoses would have to figure into any of the early funders of, uh, of the right-wing movements, as you know. And um, they were particularly fond of the Calvinist brand of... Uh, theocratic politics. 
James Dobson, uh, you know, uh, uh, Betsy and Eric's father, uh, Edgar Prince, you know, spent gave, donated five million dollars to Dobson to build his uh, his uh, center in uh, Colorado. They they were major funders, and there's a plaques to the princes in in, in the Dobson building in the focus Kingdom on the Now program. Theology. Mm-hmm. Pardon. Kingdom Now Theology, as it's called, Seven Mountains Dominionism. It's yeah, Dominionism. Yeah. Well, they're they're really Calvinists, you know. Uh, you know, they're, they're Dutch in origin, the the Devosses, and uh, and they uh, they really favor the old style Calvinism that uh, you know came out of previous centuries. Yeah. Well, uh, Mr. Briston, did you have anything to add to the CMP's origin stories? I mean, not after, you know, all that we've discussed and some of the information, obviously, is uh, from Russ Bellant's book, Course Connection. But, you know, many of the financiers of the early founding of the Council for National Policy uh, include, of course, the Coors family, uh, the Koch family, the Rockefeller family, the Hunt family, the Scaife family, and the Reverend Sung Mung Moon of the Unification Church. Mm-hmm. So, well, you know, it, it, the CMP used to be a secret organization. With the Trump administration, it, it, it came full out. It shows that's correct. Full, yes, full, full colors. It's no longer a secret organization at all. Yeah. In fact, yeah. in November of, of 2021, Michael Flynn, during an appearance at the Reawaken tour at John Hagee's Cornerstone Church, and of course, Hagee's a CMP person, okay, uh, made the, mm-hmm. uh, the comment now, and this is where it's gotten. It's no longer one nation under God. It's one nation under God and one religion under God. And this is, of course, part of Flynn's fourth generation warfare, which we'll get into. But it's very important to understand that the cococracy isn't just a corporatocracy anymore. It's theocratic as well. And and it plays a lot off of David Barton, as you know, probably, John, in in your studies. Uh, Barton was uh, is the one that uh, you know is, is taking the founding fathers and turning them in from 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 deists and masons and exactly you know and to uh, all all Christian founding believing fathers are just a crap. So we have the concerned women of concerned women of America that Barton started in 1993. You go forward 18 years to 2011. There's Barton, Newt Gingrich. Created a video on U.S. Constitution and the Old Testament. Go to 2012. There's Jeff. There's there he is arguing that Jefferson was a Christian. Go to 2013. Now Glenn Beck and Barton are going to go galt. They called it. I don't know if you're aware of this. Now, this was in 2013. The center of it was planned that David Barton would create this giant National Archive Learning Center where people can send their children to be deprogrammed. And elected officials can come to learn the truth. It's called a Galt grift, okay, because they needed a cool $2 billion to get it started. It never happened, but it was a plan of deprogramming centers for children co-founded with Glenn Beck. And wow. then add, add Ed Kilgore in 2014, okay, the GOP's constitutional conservative. And then that's when they had Michelle Bachman and all this crap, this pre-Trump. Okay, this caucus literally relies on historical revisionism, and this is where they are taking it today. This is what we see today. This is what Project Blitz is. In 2016, Barton brings in Keep the Promise. He's a, a Ted Cruz supporter. 
And then comes Rebecca Mercer and Barton gets them to go over to Trump's side. And uh, he's like a god in the GOP. And of course, he's a CNP member and a big time one and a big time player. Yeah. yeah. His book, Danny, uh, his book uh, basically uh, 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 for the constitutional amendments that abolished slavery, he referred to them as satanic. Wow. Yeah. And Michael uh, Flynn at Hagee's Church, one last thing I want to mention, he, that's where he mimicked uh, Elizabeth Carr Prophets. Uh, the Theosophical Prayer uh, oh, as it yeah. led the congregation into uh, her prayer to the Archangel, Archangel, Archangel Michael. Um, and so, I mean, you know, Flynn is a very much a major theosophist, a new mm -hmm. age, of course, theosophy and Nazism go hand in hand together as they watch out, walk off to a cliff to sunset. But what so, we found <laughs> out now, with what we found out through investigations now is that CNP, okay, was a big, big player in Stop the Steel. And they did it through Clayton Mitchell, who was a Republican lawyer who's long been a CMP player. Okay, Mitchell was in, in on the notorious January 2nd, 2021 phone call to Trump. She's a CMP member. All right, Brad Raffensperger demanded, demanded that Trump come up with the votes. She was fired after that for her law, from her law, law firm. But it doesn't matter. Mark Meckler, another CMP Gold Circle member, co-founded the Convention of State Actions. Okay, yep. Cokes. Now, this is a real yep. big thing with Eric yep. O'Keefe, okay? The Convention of States Projects is a long-standing Coke finance project. They want to trigger, trigger Article 5 of the Convention of the States, yep. and they want to rewrite the U.S. Constitution. Yep. And friends, they are getting closer and closer and closer. They took the lead in organizing the anti-COVID uh, lockdown protests in the states across the U.S. Turf, yep. Yep. Okay. Barton's yep. Wall Builders Group. How about his Wall Builders Group, which is part of the COS effort? Okay. Lisa Nelson, another SCMP member, who's you know the, the president of the uh, American Legislative Exchange Council. Go back. Nelson was a CMP event in February of 2020. She informed the group she was already working with GOP attorneys on methods to overturn the vote. This was in 2020. Okay. Amy Kramer another CNP, and her daughter, Kylie Kramer, Steve Bannon, Ali Alexander, Roger Stone, all of these people is now coming out. I, I don't have any hope in this by, quote, quote, bipartisan. Oh, no, no. It's not no, going to come out. But the CNP was big time into this, just like they were in the Brook Brothers riot of 2000 when Roger Stone you know, forced, forced uh, the, the, the recount to stop. So um, there are a lot of people now who are coming out with a lot of different information about exactly how CNP has been involved in a capital insurrection. Mm -hmm. Were some of the elements of clerical fascism present uh, in the CNP from early, one, early on? Uh, what you got for us, Russ? Yes, sir. Uh, you know, the CN, uh, I haven't memorized the earliest list that I have, but you, you had uh, Dobson, Robertson, um, uh, Hagee, Hagee. Huh? Hagee. Yeah, Hagee. Oh, Hagee? Yeah, yeah Hagee was yeah, a yeah, member. Yeah, yeah Hagee. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I can't even remember all of it, but absolutely. absolutely from Rush Dooney. Rush Dooney. Rush Dooney. That's right. There you go. Rush Dooney. The, the, uh, the, uh, 
that whole thing he created out west, uh, uh, the something coalition, uh, Rush Dooney did. Uh, and he was Birch. He, he, you know, he was published by the Birch Society, Rush Dooney. Um, and then, jeez, uh, if I see if I can remember some more. Uh, the, the, of course, the DeVosses were. <laughs> um, Tim LaHaye. Tim LaHaye with LaFon. He has, of course, founding member of the CMP. Uh, that 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 um, did right. a lot with pushing uh, Dominionism. That's right. He's a key guy, actually. And the Schmitzes, the Schmitz family. Yeah, they they weren't religious, right? They were. Oh yeah, they, they certainly certainly are. They're religious. Uh, they were Birch. They were Birchers. He was a yeah. leader of the Birch Society first and, and foremost. You know, I mean, it didn't have an explicit religious agenda. Yeah. But look, in 1973, Alec started in American legislation. Okay, Alec now is turned into Project Blitz. Project Blitz is is Alec the theocracy. Now the bill mill that's going on launched. It was launched in 2015. It's an Alec theocracy bill mill focusing on generating model legislation to further the same theocratic agenda, mm-hmm. and it's working. And 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 it's it's incredible the, the, the amount of CMP members that are involved in this thing. In the mm-hmm. first tier, there's they have three tiers. The first tier focuses on pushing the bills that protect prayer and school and other public spaces. The second tier aims at getting the government involved in actively Christianizing America. And the third tier works on the laws that protect religious beliefs and practices. It's literally a vision where conservative Christians get special legally protected rights to be fascist that no other group could get. Yes. I'm. I believe they figured that that was the way that they were going to create a, a state of uh, submission of the masses. This is the mythic past that they're 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 going. Every fascism, as we talked about in the first episode, has a mythic past. Hitler's mythic past was traditionalism, and the you know the the, the the countryside. Bannon's mythic past is Ebola and all these other characters. The United States mythic past, okay, is being inscribed by Butler. By by by, Bart, by David Bartley and all these other people, which is that the, 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 the theocracy is what the founders wanted, and of course Rushduni was a Presbyterian theologian, but he was the first one to say, "Take back government and put it in the hands of the Christians," right. and that and that's that's why they loved him. And in 1982, he, he said, get busy in constructing a Bible-based social, political, and religious order, which finally denies the religious liberty of the enemies of God. And he set up the Institute for Christian Economics as well. There are so many front groups, behind front groups. Your colleague at PRA, Frederick Carlson, Clarkson, has done a lot of good work on Project Blitz. The, yeah, um, yeah. You know, I was at a uh, organizing e- event uh, in Michigan uh, that was uh, being done by the Dobson people, and the main speaker was a uh, or had been a lieutenant in the army, and he said his his uh, life work is studying the life of Oliver Cromwell. <laughs> uh, and this, but uh, see, the Dobsonites weren't as clearly identified uh, on this uh, theocracy uh, uh, stuff because they, they operated low key. They created these community impact committees and they had tons of them all over and based in churches and meeting in churches. 
not, you know, not in community centers. And they created uh, fronts, you know, committee for So whereas the Christian coalition was really overt, they operated in a more sub rosa fashion. And, and, you know, they had dozens of community impact committees just in Michigan. They had to have a thousand of them across the country. Uh, I remember when, when, when Louis Lapham of, of Harper Magazine was writing about uh, David Barton, uh, and, and he said that, um, you know, basically what they've created is, is, is just a network of Santa's little helpers. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what you just described, you know, that Dobson had his own little, you know, job in the assembly line. Everybody's got a job in the assembly line. Everybody is organized. And that's why I'm saying this is an organized fascist movement that is international. And we get more into the CNP and further programs, we'll see that the CNP is also international. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, 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 you know, to uh, connect it to other, uh, to other elements, uh, you mentioned uh, Radio Free Asia. Dobson was on Radio Free Asia, uh, which is an intelligence uh, outlet. Um, you know, doing this stuff. Uh, you know, I, I also uh, wonder: have you, have, the, have you guys had an opportunity to do some readings and study on the shepherding discipleship phenomenon? One of the subsets of this movement, the shepherding discipleship. Um, I've I've heard of it, Russ. Yes. Yeah, you've heard of it, but you know, I have. I did a third book, uh, which you know I haven't talked about as much. It's called "The Religious Right in Michigan Politics." But I, the first chapter is called Taking Dominion. And I talk about, not all, first and foremost, the shepherding discipleship move phenomenon, as well as the reconstructionist. Uh, they were separate phenomena. And I'm, I, I've finally decided, I've only got two of the volumes uh, left, and, but I'm going to cut one of them up and get them scanned so I can send it out and get it out to uh, people who could use it. I, it. I mean, this was written 30 years ago. Um, and I... Uh, and I don't think enough people have seen that this discussion of the shepherding discipleship stuff, but these, these, uh, these cult groups and shepherding discipleship were used in the counterinsurgency in Nicaragua. They were using counterinsurgency in um, Philippines. And those are just the ones we know of. We have, I have reason to believe that they were doing really covert stuff in the Middle East as well. So Interesting, interesting, because, you know, the uh, Dr. John Linswatsky, a member of the CNP started an Institute of World Politics, which Sebastian Gorka happens to be a professor in. And oh, I think brother. that this kind this may be related to some of the things that you just been talking about. Yeah. It, yeah, it's kind yeah, of Yeah, you're talking about the um the Lauderdale Five. The Fort Lauderdale uh, Five. And yeah. they had um kind of at least um pushback, at least falsely or positively against uh, Pat Robertson. Now, I knew I do know that Derek Prince later condemn uh the shepherding movement which he was a part of yeah um but yes i have i have researched mm-hmm. the, uh their connections to what you're discussing russ and uh there was also the people of praise network there was the uh sort of the spirit which is the most important that's what i focused on um they were they they had the the Fort Lauderdale Five had a uh, covert council. It was it was never supposed to be discussed publicly, and it included the sort of the spirit leaders, Ralph Martin and Steve Clark, uh, that they uh, consulted, and you know everybody was in mutual submission to each other and all that other stuff. Um, and uh, I published that in 1988 uh, in a series, 
And so I, I, ha I have that appended to the book that I'm saying I'm going to uh, cut up and just, you know, scan and get out to people. Um, Amy, Amy Conant Barrett comes out of one of the uh, Shepherding right. Discipleship groups uh, based and uh, 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 really it came out of Notre Dame. And, uh, and it was tied in. And there was also something called the City of God in uh, Tempe, Arizona. And I was just looking at that recently. And, and they're tied into, uh, they were tied, had some ties, uh, at least one good strong tie. The coordinator there was linked to Phalanges in Spain. You know, uh, so it's kind of, the more we can learn about that phenomenon, and I, I think the more discovery, but but you know it's it's uh it's deeply cultic and it creates a super command structure of unquestioning obedience. That's basically what shepherding discipleship is. Yeah, and I mean I think it's definitely spot on that I mean it would be you know connected to counterinsurgency as well. I mean I think that was yeah. a big part of why you see you know especially a lot of the special operations. I mean investing so much in researching anthropology and stuff going back to the fifties and sixties. I mean effectively yeah. you know they were looking at a way to uh, create doctrines uh, that could be applicable to developing worlds and uh, even domestically to manipulate people into supporting a lot of these movements. So. Yeah, it, uh, it, and uh, it came out of the Curcio movement, out of the Vatican's Curcio movement. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And, uh, but it, as uh, John has said, you know, a number of uh, evangelicals uh, condemned the practice as they began to find out more about it, you know, because it was causing a, a lot, it was damaging a lot of people in the end, you know, like all cults do. And that started surfacing and it, it was condemned. But that doesn't mean it's not still operating some roles that, in ways that, people don't see well they, it's interesting you say that because they um uh, because according to some polls that have come out some polls show that people are less religious and other polls are, are showing that people are more religious so it's difficult to get a grasp on it mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well you christian, christian nationalism has moved from the fringe to the white house you know that about Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know the, the polls won't give us any indication because yeah. you know these are these are closed uh, closed stories. You know the headquarters, the world headquarters of all this was in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which was considered a liberal city. University of Michigan, you know, and all that sort of stuff. But out, out of that, you know, was the the core group was formed, and it, they started setting up satellites uh, all over the world. So well, you know, you, you know, it's another interesting phenomenon too that we we haven't touched on, which which, which would be uh, uh, Weirich's uh, ties, and you, you mentioned it uh, briefly with Russia. Um, he was on a, a U.S. Russian military. He was he was with a panelist and William S. Lind, who's a proponent of fourth generation warfare. Um, they attended um, with Louis Gohmert uh, panel um, along with Warbunker in Russia. Um, and all of these people come from the upper echelon of the Council of National Policy, along with the Religious Roundtable, remember, was set up in 1979 as a domestic surveillance arm of the John Birch Society, which was Western Golds. But Religious Roundtable was set up uh, kind of like as a chamber of commerce in 1979. Um, yeah, take off of the Business Roundtable, huh? That's right. It's, that's, that's the point I'm trying to make. I'm not being, I'm not making myself clear. Well, yeah, there, there's a lot of operations going right now in Russia 
uh, through the uh, World Congress of the Families. And it's it is tied to the uh, and launched through uh, the Rockford Institute, and which spun off the Howard Center for Families, I think is the name of it, the Howard Center, and the Charlemagne Institute, which is in Minnesota, um, which is an odd name for an American organization. You know, they they call their internships Alcuin interns. You know, Alcuin being the theological uh, educator and motivator of uh, Charlemagne era in the years 800, you know. Uh, so this, I mean, straight medievalism, in other words. Um, and there's medievalist forces, uh, you know, organizing in Russia. And these folks are link, linked up. They're not, and you know, that's why Pat Buchanan did a piece in the uh, Chronicles uh, saying Russia's not our enemy, they're our friend, but China's our enemy um, because they're finding this uh, explosive growth of right-wing power in, uh, in Russia. Well, as we'll look at in later shows, there's an actual organization that is Russian. It's, it's called Rodine, and it is um, basically the fascist party of Russia right now, but I, that's kind of, we're trying to get off of where we're at right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, um, but it augments the power of the people we're looking at here because they have they have power around the world. You know, it augments their power. Absolutely. All right, let's uh, get into fourth generation warfare here. I've covered that at length before in a couple of shows, so we're not going to get too in depth here. But uh, John, can you give us an overview of it and what role the CMP played in its spread? Oh yeah, I mean we've we've discussed fourth generational warfare many times, but I guess I guess simply put about fourth generational warfare, it's instead of using, um, you know, uh, as far as warfare is concerned, using uh, line and column type tactics that were used for first generational warfare, using muskets uh, during the uh, civil uh, the United States Civil War, for example, or uh, second generational warfare using uh, reliance of indirect uh, fire that you would see in World War I and artillery, or third generation using infiltration to uh, bypass and collapse enemy combat forces. Um, fourth generational warfare is uh, using um, not necessarily direct tasks, but more indirect tasks of, of subverting one's enemy, uh, like a uh, spread of uh, propaganda, um, terrorist attacks, uh, kind of using um, psychological, graphical and psychological warfare um, uh, against a populace. Um, and so I will discuss, you've heard us speak about this at length, um, but I think it's prevalent with what's going on today i'm going to discuss uh the most in my opinion the most modern uh representation of the council for national policies uh use of fourth generational warfare uh which was the psychological uh psychographical and spiritual warfare that was um pushed by uh, cambridge analytica um and uh you know later morphed into what the QAnon operation which later led to the events of the january 6th miss event in the capital uh, which is still going on to this day. It's still continuing. People think it's dead. It's not dead. It's still alive and well. And the Council for National Policy is pushing this warfare uh, against the American public and around the world, too. There's a big, huge following of the QAnon phenomenon operation in, in, in Japan. 
Um, but so it's still going on today, but the modern representation of that. I mean, uh, Cambridge Analytica, you had, um, it was, you know, uh, of course, founded by Alexander Nix, but um, you do have, of course, uh, the Mercer family, where Council for National Policy Financiers, members of the Council for National Policy Financiers of Cambridge Analytica. You had Stephen K. Bannon, uh, Council for National Policy member. You had Michael Flynn within Cambridge Analytica, uh, Council for National Policy member, too, as well. Um, and so, you know, you have the CMP. Uh, using the data that they had gotten from Facebook uh, to psychographical and, and uh, psychologically uh, profile and use that against uh, conservative-minded, right-leaning mining people in the United States of America uh, to vote for the CMP-backed candidate for president, which was at once uh, Grandpa Munster, uh, possible um, Zodiac killer, uh, Ted Cruz. Uh, and I'm joking about the Zodiac killer, it's a joke, but, uh, but um, it morphed to uh, Donald Trump. Um, and um, yeah, I fell for it. I've, I've admitted I, I voted for Trump in 2016. I don't know what was wrong with me. I, I fell for the warfare. Uh, I didn't know about the CMP at the time. I found about them later on because the CMP controls a majority of alternative media. I'm never voting again. I didn't vote previously before that, except for uh, one time where I want to say I voted for Bush back when I was a conservative in 2004 growing up. Uh, but I uh, will never vote again. Not doing it. And uh, so they used, obviously, um, I've never voted again from the national election. Um, they, but they used um, people's uh, fears. Uh, they ramped them up. Um, they're still doing it to this day to divide the country. You, you know, Recluse and I, you and I have discussed uh, that you have the left leg of the QAnon operation, which is run by uh, four-star general Stanley McChrystal using defeat to info and kind of running this underground uh, progressive, 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 quotation marks, version of QAnon with many neoconservatives on Twitter uh, uh, pushing it with uh, Gitmo and arrests any day now, uh, very uh, similar to what's being pushed by the right-wing version of QAnon, which is run by CMP member Michael Flynn, uh, which is the right wing of the operation. So they're using uh, this fourth generational warfare uh, to rile up the American public and to radicalize them. And, and uh, um, it has worked you know, on, on many people. It sadly worked on me, uh, but I reject uh, that radicalism now. Uh, and uh, I, I call it out for what it is every chance I get because it, it still angers me to this day uh, that I was tricked. But I mean, when you have counts for national policy members like Alex Jones, uh, Glenn Beck, um, you have uh, Rush Limbaugh, uh, you have uh, you know people that can't prove her in the CMP, but at least have CMP talking points like Sean Hannity or Tucker Carlson, uh, you know that are that are out there, uh, you know, pushing this to people who are right leaning or conservative mind minded day in and day out. Uh, the, this type of propaganda, and they 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 data mined all this, you know, using uh, Cambridge Analytica, you know, from Facebook. Uh, what drives them? What you know? What what, what their fears are? What their relationships are like? Uh, all, all you know, all the questions and data they gave through the CMP controlled I voter guide. Uh, and, you know, they use it in the 2020 election. They're going to use it in the 2024 election. They're going to keep uh, uh, getting away with it. You know, um, you know, uh, a big part of Stop the Steal uh, that Danny was talking about, which plays into this larger fourth generation QAnon nexus is just another off branch of it. 
that the CMP was deeply involved with uh, um, uh, Stop the Steal. But, you know, after all the people that Danny had mentioned that are all CMPs, you know, Mark Meckler, Jenny Beth Martin, founder of Tea Party Patriots, uh, um, among others, was someone uh, that was very much involved outside of Roger Stone, uh, in which is Ali Akbar, Ali Alexander is a member of the CMP. Uh, and Ali Akbar, um, the people that were above him, the people that financed Ali Akbar were the Mercers, the CMP Mercers. Uh, Council for National Policy former president Foster Freeze, who also was very uh, big with uh, funding Charlie Kirk and Turning Point USA, and uh, uh, CMP member Neil Patel, who was the um, uh, 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 who was the uh, uh, so one of the advisors to CMP Dick Cheney and for Palpatine? Very interestingly enough, how all the phony quote unquote progressives on Twitter were welcoming back, you know, Dick Cheney being there with Liz Cheney with the January 6th uh, kind of uh, committee uh, shenanigans that they did, uh, you know, uh, back this January 6th, kind of like their whole thing where they welcomed Dick Cheney and Dick Cheney was shaking hands with Nancy Pelosi. And I saw on Twitter, finally, finally, Dick Cheney has joined the resistance. Emperor Palpatine himself has joined the Rebel Alliance, the war criminal Dick Cheney. So, you know, it, it just, it, it never, I, I'm just, I, my, my jaw drops every day. Um, it's because it's one organized ruling class. Yes. You yes. just have different front groups. It's like if you had your money, you know, you had a billion dollars and you put it in the 35 offshore accounts, you're still controlling the offshore accounts. Yes. It's a, and it's a fake, it's a fake psyop. And that is yes. fourth generation warfare. Because in order to have fourth generation warfare, you had to have first generation, second generation, and third generation. And what fourth generation does is is it, it radicalized and divided Cambridge Analytica and all the ops through there, and I voted like everything. It radicalized and, and, and divided both sides of the political spectrum. You know, I believe that the left-right political paradigm is a sham. People might have personal beliefs that might lend, you know, lead to them being left-leaning or right-leaning if you want to use those monikers. But in reality, the elite, it's a sham. So they drove people like they the elite pitted people against each other. I'm blue team, I'm red team. You know, we're not American citizens anymore. We're I'm a Republican. I'm a Democrat. And then and they, it's permanent election electioneering. It yes. never stops. You're always no. running for president every day. Every day is permanent electioneering. You know, it, it, John, just really quickly, I would like to say something that what you're saying is so important. Yes. Is, you know, in, 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 in the early 1920s, uh, there was a, a, a gentleman uh, by the name of Walter Lippmann, who is a pundit. And he was a, a speechwriter for many, many presidents, but he was a pundit. And Lippmann called for the close regulation of media and the professionalization of journalism. And he said there should be a class of experts for each sector of government acting as political observatories. And he wrote a book called Public Opinion in 1922, right after propaganda came out. And in public, and he had he had a debate which I wrote about for Counterpunch a long time ago about uh, education with John Dewey. 
But basically what Lichtman argued is he argued that there's a we should need a cadre of independent experts who would provide accurate information to elected officials who understand science and technology, and they would make all the decisions because the average citizen is just too stupid and can't make a decision about how they want to live their own lives. And he reiterated his call for the creation of a technocratic group of experts. Now, if you start merging what Lippmann said in 1922 in public opinion and how one can perception management public opinion, okay, you see that that is what the CMP is doing. That is fourth generation work. That is what yes, yes. And they're doing it to get us to hate each other instead of looking at the elite and looking at them and holding them accountable. It's, you know, every. I mean, that's all social media does. You know, it's 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 psychological, psychographical warfare divides people, gets people each other throats and you have bots and agents and bad actors. And it's just a toxic cesspool. But it's um, good I mean, for I, business. Yes, it's great of for course. Ratings. It's great yes. for ratings. Just to let you know that those companies that said, hey, we're not going to support anybody that was part of Trump administration or that's running on Trump. There are a number of companies that came out. They were pressured to drop. Uh, they're, they're, okay, Those companies have reneged, just okay. like in Germany in 1930s. Yep. They said, yes. now we're going we're gonna to fund anybody we want to fund. Now, now, Danny, now, CNN never platform boosted Donald Trump and Jeff Sucker's not good friends with Donald Trump. That never yeah, happened. Right. Okay? CNN's really showing, really getting the real news out there. There you go. Russ, uh, did you have anything to uh, add on fourth generation warfare? Uh, uh, no, just, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's been well summarized just to say that, uh, that the, the power is so broad and so institutionalized and so covert in its sources of power and its money and its uh, techniques, but pervasive in the daily life of this country, that, uh, that it's a challenge for thinking people to try and bring the population or make this population aware of the plots that have been pulled on them. All right. Well, as we start going into the uh, home stretch here, let's get into how the further uh, change, how the and we further changed uh, political sentiment in the U.S., or how rather they have further changed political sentiment in the U.S. Danny, you see the 1980s as the rise of the anti-immigration movement. Can you get into that a bit, and what role did the CMP play in it? Sure. Let me just begin by saying, in the 1980s, I was fortunate enough to live in Nicaragua in '85 for the full year. But the year before, I lived in, in Mexico, in southern Yucatan. Um, when I came back from Nicaragua in 1986, after having spent a year, I really didn't really know what to do with my life. I, I, I would talk, try to talk to people about what was going on in Nicaragua and the Christic Institute and some fine journalists at, at Consortium News. Uh, Bob Perry were doing some good work. But I happened to be down there and um, happened to see it. And it was the same thing with teaching. I became a teacher in South Central Los Angeles in 1987 so that I could help um, what we call newly arriving immigrants from El Salvador and Nicaragua and war-torn Central America. Because I, I, I came back, like I say, in, in the beginning of 86, I was working on the phones of selling something. Or, and I knew I had to do something with this knowledge and this passion that I had. So I became a second grade teacher and I would teach the, um, the sons and daughters of um, uh, the people that came in terrorized by Dobison and, and the death squads, and I would teach their, their, their children, and I got to know them as families. 
Um, the anti-immigration in the night, so I was there. Is that, uh, what I'm trying to do is to give a little authenticity. So that, that remember the Powell memo promoted the use of front groups. Okay, and I remember this. And he was, and his was really a, a memo against the intelligentsia. Okay, this is what he, he started the cultural really was the memo in 71. And since that memo and the chamber making it operational and everything we've talked about, we've started to see, here we go. The Center for Immigration Studies, an anti-immigrant think tank founded by racist John Tanton. Okay, he appointed Babe Buchanan, okay, a, 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 a Pat Buchanan's sister to be the head of this. A Buchanan herself is a president was in the 80s, the president of the American cause, a group founded by her brother. These are all racist, anti-immigration groups. Okay. Um, the Center for Immigration Studies was founded in 1985 by John Kent, and it became the go-to think tank for anti-immigration movement with reports, staffers, and had media and anti-immigrant pol politicians that basically followed the power playbook. Okay. And they still, you can still find them online, cis.org, all right? Tan was a, a retired ophthalmologist from Michigan. You might know him. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, okay, he spent decades at the heart of the white nationalist movement in Michigan. And his racist views were first exposed in 88 when a series of private memos came out because he put together the Federation for American Immigration Reform or FAIR, and they leaked it to the press. And the yeah. memos were filled with racist statement and warning of the, this is an 85, warning yeah. of a racist, of a Latin onslaught. Now, when you hear the word Latin onslaught, think of Camp of the Saints, yes. the great replacement theory that Trump and Bannon pushed. Yeah. Okay, the CIS's much touted tagline was, quote, low immigration, pro-immigrant. But the organization has always been white national. Now, Tanton has been, you can go to the Southern Poverty Law Center and read more on Tanton if you want. But Tant was, is, was inherited. He pushed the Conservative Heritage Foundation. He was actually pushed out of the Heritage Foundation through pseudoscience. Okay. CIS is, is, a, a, is, a, is a, an anti-immigrant. Okay. Tanton finds Federation of, Ameri of American Immigration Reform on January 2nd, 1979. He serves on the board with a guy by the name of Roger Connor. Okay, before this, he's working with zero population growth in 75 and 77. Now, I don't know if you remember what, remember what zero population growth was, but it was headed by a man by the name of Paul Ehrlich. And Paul Ehrlich's rap was overpopulation. He was basically a Malthusian. And Paul Ehrlich wrote a whole bunch of books in the 70s about how we're going to kill ourselves through overpopulation. So he, it's a group called Zero Population Growth. He leaves that group and he goes on and he starts another group. That, okay, He wants to get rid of what's called the Nationality Act of 1965. In 1965, one of the groups, this is one of the group's main goals, chance group. In 1965, an Immigration and Nationality Act was passed, and it ended decades-long racist quota system that limited immigration mostly to Europeans, Northern Europeans. It was repealed. It was he wants it back. So he 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 and his buddy Dan Stein, it's a mistake. They're Holocaust deniers. One of them is a Klan lawyer. They're involved with Jared Taylor, if you know who he is. 
Yeah. Okay. Who says when blacks are left entirely to their own devices, Western civilization of any kind of civilization disappears. He um, he's involved with Kevin McDonald. Okay. John Collins is a board member. John Trevor. These are terribly terrible pro-Nazi, diabolically anti-Jewish people. All funded by the uh, the CMP Regnaries. All funded. Exactly, John. That's what I'm leading up to. And, 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 and also the Regnery family, uh, the uh, patriarch at the time, I think it was Henry Regnery, was Henry. the Secretary of Treasury for the Institute of American Strategy for nearly two decades. Um, exactly. Yeah, and, and American first or two. And American first. That was his That was his uncle, actually, if I remember correctly. This would have been later by the time, Al I think that was Alfred Regnery had shed his uh, mortal coil. Uh, but well, the family had endorsed all this crap, though, for decades, no doubt. <laughs> wrote the afterword for the, for the camps of saints and, and I, mean, he, I mean he, i mean I, 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 it can't be his honor i mean it'd be, it'd be, it'd be, he's a member of the pioneers fund uh, good friends with with, with with all with all these people so i mean yes in the 1980s we see the growth of the anti-immigration movement they're stealing our jobs why are they stealing our jobs? Because capitalism is failing and there is no work. There's no work. So blame it on the immigrant. See, in closing, and then I'll stop because I've got so much more, but I know that we have time for considerations. Uh, the Council on Conservative Citizens is another racist. Uh, yes. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. Came, um, that came out of the Liberty Lobby, I think. That came out of the Liberty Lobby. Willis Cartel. Yeah, Willis Cartel. But, uh, you know, the, all the stuff around the Federation of American Immigration Reform, we were talking about the Pioneer Fund. If you want something that labels it clear, the Pioneer Fund was funding that. They wouldn't have done it unless it was eugenic racist uh, in content. And uh, Tantanum, by the way, was saying the Federation is not racist. It's just trying to do blah, blah, blah. And he was always denying yeah, it. And then he's getting money from the Pioneer Fund. <laughs> right. More than that. In 1992, he's arguing about don't send money to starving Ethiopians, noting that to do so would only encourage population growth. Wow. He lauded China for his one-child policy. He worked with Governor Richard Lamb, a long member of Fairs Board. He worked with Vidare. I don't know if you folks know what Vidare is, but Vidare is an anti-immigrant hate site named after Virginia Dare, uh, said to have been the first English child born in the New World. We see in the 1980s the development of the English-only movements, the English-first right. movements. Yeah. They all came out. I was a bilingual educator. I had to get a bilingual education degree, which means I had to spend a take a special test, and then I would get a differential, an extra $2,500 a year because I could work with Hispanic children. They were all against all that, and then I had to go. No more bilingual. And in fact, they passed bills getting rid of bilingual education. In the, in, in, in the, when Schwarzenegger was, was governor of California. And in the 1990s, they went, they just went ballistic, went ballistic, and they, they destroyed all of our organizations. Uh, the, the Council uh, for, for Bilingual Education, the National Council for Bilingual Education, they destroyed all of our organizations because I was a member of them. I used to give workshops. They destroyed them. Danny, you you mentioned John Trevor is one of the names with uh, in that's the, right, uh, 
And that just shows the uh, historical uh, ca uh, capacity for historical continuity for them because it was uh, John Trevor Sr., the original John Trevor, who formed the American Coalition of Patriotic Societies in the 1920s to fight for and support and retain that those immigration restrictions in the 1924 Immigration Act that restricted immigration, it had to be based on percentages of the American population background. So it would be favor the Nordic, you know? That's right. And, Trevor's uh, immigration plan upheld like, what, 64 Trevor, huh? Trevor his, his immigration plan was like upheld until like 1964 or something, right? Yeah, yeah, that was in place. 65 is when the act passed. 65, yeah. 65 was the act passed. That's and right. they've been trying to get rid of that act since. And that was part of the American Security Council Coalition for Peace Through Strength. Yeah. And later on, John, yeah, his John son continued that on way was in the para, uh, in the uh, uh, they, uh, yeah, yeah. Not only that, fair moved into the State Department. Okay, John Zadrowski, who was a formerly a fair official, who's also a Nazi, moved into the State Department after he was in the Domestic Policy Council. You got Ian Smith, who was formerly employed by Fair's Legal Arm. He had to resign his position at Homeland Security Analyst because in 2018, leaked emails to the Atlantic tied it to nationalist, white nationalist Richard Spencer. You had Linda Chavez. I don't know if you people remember Linda Chavez. She yeah, Manhattan. I, yeah, she all right. She she was the English only movement. She yeah. helped John Tanton and U.S. Senator S.I. Hayakawa found U.S. English. Um, uh, uh, okay. Walter yeah. Cronkite and and it was on the board. And they 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 actually resigned in shame once Tanton once all this dirt stopped, started leaking. There was a guy by the name of James Lubinska who was in communications for U.S. English in two thousand three. He'd been a, a, a member, okay? He'd been an assistant editor of the American Renaissance, a, a magazine that promotes scientific racism. He spoke to the Council for Conservative Citizens. In 2000, Lubinska shared a stage with David Duke at a gathering of the American Friends of the British National Party. I mean, this is the anti-immigration movement. Yeah. It's not an anti-immigration movement. It's a white colonial settler movement. Mm-hmm. Right. That's a good segue in here to our closing uh, discussion point here, and that is the rise of the militia movement in the 1980s. There have been efforts to revive paramilitary movements in the U.S. throughout the Cold War, but things really took off in the 1980s during the farm crisis. So do you guys see the CMP playing a role in the rise of the movement? Uh, Danny, do you want to start us off on this? Yeah, let, let, me, let me just, let me speak, uh, 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 again, I, I don't want to get worried here. When we speak about militias, we have to speak about the government, okay? Because they're, they're really, they're all kind of tied up together. So it's best, it's best to start with gun rights and militias. We got to understand that the Second Amendment, like most provisos of the U.S. Constitution formulated in the 18th century, late 18th century, there was both a class and a race bias to the provision of the Constitution, which is one of the sole reasons it's hard for people of color to get protection under the Constitution. The Second Amendment did not apply to enslaved Americans, Africans, excuse me. The Second <laughs> Amendment did not apply to indigenous people. In fact, all measures were taken to keep arms out of these people's hands. So these people who are telling you that they love guns and everybody should have a gun, are, are, you know, they're lying to you. They're talking about white people. Right. What are they talking about? The gun movement is a white movement. 
And the Second right. Movement did not apply to indigenous people. European settlers were at war with indigenous people. They wanted to take their guns away and kill them, okay? And providing arms to them was considered to be a capital offense. You could be hung for providing arms to indigenous. So we're talking about a colonial settler class. And to keep in mind that after the Civil War, when the enslaved Africans are freed, a good deal of the battles, the bloody reconstruction period, circa 1865 going forward, okay? It's all about keeping guns out of black people's hands. That's where the Ku Klux Klan started in 1961. And so in order to understand the amendment, you have to understand its interpretation historically. And since the Second Amendment speaks precisely to a well-regulated militia, the legal question, and I am a public interest lawyer, the legal question is the following. The Second Amendment speaks to a, precisely to a well-regulated militia. The question is, does that right devolve onto a militia or does it devolve onto individuals? And the way it is interpreted today is the individuals is being substituted for the word militia. So militias were needed precisely to repress rambunctious, rampaging, enslaved Africans of marauding indigenous people. They love militias, and that's what the Second Amendment was all about. And in the U.S., when we talk about the right of individuals to carry arms, we're not talking about any militias, okay? Okay, the, the whole debate has been transformed since the Civil War. And this was a huge debate around the Civil War. So you jump, you jump back forward 100, 100 years. Um, did you see anybody out there uh, when the Black Panthers took over Sacramento Capitol in 1967? See anybody out there going, great, you know, let them have guns. Everybody should have guns. Right. You see the National Rifle Association out there with its purest regard of the Second Amendment, happy that uh, Huey Newton's got a gun in his hand? No, of course not. Nor are they going to be happy about Antifa having guns. All right. Gun sales doubled since the election of Barack Obama, and they probably tripled since that time, since Trump. The right wing of the United States has not ruled out the possibility of a mass armed uprising against a particular government they don't like. Okay. And the way it's portrayed in the media is false. It's not a gun issue, it's a white colonial settler issue. And it's an issue of fascism. So when the right wing talks about laws on the books regarding guarding, they say, well, we already have laws on the books regarding gun ownership. Yeah, but if you look at the ATF and, 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 and the FBI designed to regulate firearms, Republicans have cut their budget. They don't have any money. And the Center for Disease Control, Republicans have made sure that, that can't, this can't be a, a, a medical issue. So in the 20th century militias, okay, we've got... We started with the Silver Shirt Legion and the Christian Front Marches in America in the 30s. Later in the Cold War, we had the California Rangers and the Middlemen. In the 80s, we had the Survivalists, the Christian Patriot Defense League, the Texas Emergency Reserve for the White Patriot Party. The militia movement is heir to the white paramilitary the tradition seeped in white settler ideology, but it is heir too to an also another issue, posse comitatus an elaborate conspiratorial view of American history of government, one that claims that a legitimate government has been subverted by conspirators and been replaced. And Kamasi members believe, and this is why Trump pardoned Arpaio, one of the reasons, okay, they believe in this whole notion 
of sheriff's-led insurrections. I don't know if you, you, you people are familiar with folks here are familiar with this, but Potter Gale, a Christian identity minister, was one of the founders of the Posse Comitatus. And in the 1980s, he appoints himself chief of staff to an unorganized militia of a group known as the Committee of States. Okay, and he, he uses the word unorganized militia. It's significant because it's a statutory term in federal and state law that refers to nominal manpower pool created by a century of federal law. Okay, in other words, use, by using certain terms, he gets out of certain legal problems. All right, now we see that the sheriff's help led this incident. The sheriffs play a key role in the right-wing insurrection that we see now, the white supremacist movement. There's an article January 15, 2012, that somebody can Google. It's called Sheriffs Play a Key Role in Right-Wing White Supremacist Movement. Why? 90% of all sheriffs in the United States are white. Okay? 90% are white. And they're all Trumpers. Almost all of them are Trumpers. And this is, includes former and current sheriffs. There's, uh, they have their own organization made up of over 4,500 people. And they're in all these kinds of counties. And they, on January 6th, the sheriffs have been helping to lay groundwork for, for, for what went on in January 6th. They've for a long time had a good old boy culture and they're involved in this COVID-19 thing that's going on. And that's why Trump loves the sheriffs and why they met at the White House. And the sheriffs hold, there are people that believe the sheriffs hold the ultimate law enforcement authority in the country, outranking even the federal government. And that's what these segregationists and these militias believe. They believe that their government is run by a sheriff. And the sheriffs have always played a key role in extrajudicial militia movements. Yeah. And they're always a masculine, and they're always part of gun populism, and they're always white men. And, and that's kind of what I have to say about this constitutional sheriff movement. Keep yeah. your eye on it because it's something that's coming out now. Yes, it's been around for a while. And they say other police forces are not legitimate. All police uh, activity, policing activity should be under the control of the sheriff. That's right. The county sheriff. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, about a year and a half, a year ago, a year and a half ago, the um, Michigan sheriffs brought in a speaker, and I don't remember the speaker's name, but he talked about that you should not be worried about killing people. He said, I've done it, and he said, I just want to tell you how it's actually been invigorating for me, and he talked about how it made him more... Uh, romantic toward his wife it made him just more fulfilled as a person he said people should not get into a funk this was after the george floyd you know uh killing was what you know made widely known so he's coming in here giving an art art uh counterpoint saying the killing is okay and you can feel good about doing it when you do it homicide is romanticism homicide is romanticism you know, the, you had a guy in Michigan, a militia member, who posted on Facebook recently. It says, while, while we're speaking about local offices, we also need sheriffs elected yeah. in each county who understand the Constitution, that they have the power within the county they serve, 
not yeah. the federal government. And during the Grand Rapids rally in May, this guy Leaf pointed a Barry County Sheriff badge on his chest saying, this isn't really a badge. It's a shield. It represents the knights protecting their kingdom. Yeah, yeah. Darleaf Dar Dar is a featured speaker at the uh, so-called militias. I, I still call them vigilante groups, but uh, at the militia, so-called militia meetings. And uh, and he's made statements uh, that the uh, their, the plot to uh, kidnap and kill the governor, uh, they didn't violate any laws. <laughs> you know, he wouldn't arrest them. Well, uh, Mr. Brisson, or uh, did you have anything else there, Russ? Or... Uh, just nope. don't forget That's about it. just don't forget about uh, Sheriff David Clark and his uh, ties yeah. to the Council for National Policy too, as well. You know, mentioning Milwaukee, it's another tie-in. Yeah, I, I I think his uh he he has dropped in stature, and after he mo moved out there for a while, he, he wasn't uh he lost some prominence, didn't he, John? Yeah, um, yeah, but they still. Yeah, I still see Clark pop up. Yeah. So I still see him yeah. pop up. He's not as um front and center as he once was. Um mm -hmm. uh by you know in, in the CMP controlled media, but he still comes out from time to time. Okay. Um, and he's he's probably one of the bigger because Arpaio, uh I'd say Clark actually kind of rivaled Arpaio, Arpaio as far as modern day pushing yeah. of sheriffs. Mm -hmm. uh here recently in the past i don't know maybe f five eight years um but uh I, I mean again i think one of the biggest last things that came out about clark if i remember was he was part of steve bannon's uh we built the wall uh scam um oh so i think wow. that's probably the most recent thing okay that came I out against Clark. I didn't realize that didn't make that connection. Okay. Yeah, he's part of a lot of the fundraise fundraiser uh, uh, for yeah. the We Build the Wall. Uh, of course, Eric Prince was also an advisory board of that. And uh, <laughs> uh, if I remember, so was Chris Kobach, I think. If I remember. So, I mean, same old people. <laughs> Might as yeah. well just a revolving door, door of names. <laughs> yeah. So. It's not just the same old people, just in closing, it's the same playbook. When they attacked multiculturalism, my, my first book was Critical Race Theory that I wrote in 1991. People can go get it if they want. It's called Toward a, Multicultural, Toward a Critical Multicultural Literacy, where I advocated that not only should race theory be taught in schools to second graders. Okay, I was teaching kindergarten at the time I wrote the book. Um, but, but, but it has to be close developmentally appropriate, but, but I was teaching that, of course, these subjects need to be brought into the curriculum because we want education for liberation, not education so that you can learn how to, we don't, we, as John Dewey said, we don't go to school to learn how to, to learn how to make a living. We go to school to learn how to live. And, and, and so, so much of what I will, I've written about in education and so much of what it's being attacked now. Uh, I was the victim of the same attack, only it was called multiculturalism in the 1980s. Now it's called critical race theory. But Henry Drew, a good colleague of mine and I, we've been writing about this stuff for 40 years. We know what it is. We know what they're talking about. And we know what they're doing. I don't know if you know that I did write a, an article of, uh, on Texas. Texas has made critical thinking illegal in all public schools. Yeah. Uh, I have a PhD in critical thinking and I've written extensively on it. You're not allowed to teach it in school anymore in Texas. I wrote that article 10 years ago, yeah. 10 years ago. Critical race theory 
was really uh, a, a phenomenon at the university, in the university world to some degree, but it wasn't really in the K-12 world, but they started passing laws against it because they were trying to mobilize white voters uh, right. against the edu public education system. And against multiculturalism. Yes, See, right. the English-only movement is the anti-immigration movement, which is the white segregationist movement, which is the, 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 the clero-fascist movement, which is the international fascist movement, which is the collapse of the United States, and in my judgment, probably secession. I, I mean, I don't see it any other way. Mm -hmm. I mean, you take a look at Texas. Just look at Texas, my God. They've had governors talking about secessions uh, for several decades. I understand. Even some yeah. of us on the left were talking about secession back in the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, but now I think that the secession is going to be an economic reality. Mm. I think it's going to be an economic reality. I don't think there's enough money. And I, I think the, the country's broke. And yeah. that's why they have us running around fighting against each other, because we're broke. We're broke. All of us are broke. We don't have any money. It's interesting. We don't have any jobs. We don't have any health care. Because capitalism can't deliver the goods. It's interesting that Elon Musk moved his operations to Texas. They're purposely doing it. They're moving to Miami and to Texas, to Florida and Texas, because they're looking towards secession. This is part of the Article 5, the rewriting of the Constitution the Koch brothers wanted to. Mm -hmm. These people want to break the U.S. into ethno-states. They want East Oregon to be white people and part of the U.S. to be black people. It's happening. Whether it happens will have a lot to do with us, but it is a conscious, active movement that's happening. On that note, uh, we shall wrap up then. Uh, I want to thank you guys. As always, this has been a fascinating chat, and uh, I hope you guys uh, listening out there have enjoyed it as much as I have. Hopefully, we'll have a couple of these guys back here in the ongoing series. Uh, probably have at least probably two, if not three more shows. We've got to go into some of the developments in Latin America and Europe and uh, how the fascist movements there are rising into the 21st century and uh, the concerning mm -hmm. political developments. And we also go to get into the rise of surveillance capitalism here and its spread to the broader world and the rise of the PayPal mafia, which goes hand in hand with that. <laughs> so, yes. It's yes, going to be indeed. fun times, guys. It's going to be fun. Well, not fun, but you know what I mean. Yeah. On that note, good night and good luck to you all.